I got into this through tremendous pain, and I truly believe in in the you know the therapeutic application of bringing sort of these natural parts of the ecology into our lives, and to sort of that sort of nature realignment principle, and just to really find ourselves, and you know, to just create the framework that we can take responsibility and just start to put our lives in order. And I think that's what's really needed today. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. In today's world, one thing has become abundantly clear, and that is as a collective and as individuals, we could really be well served by learning how to manage our stress. In fact, according to the American Psychological Association, chronic stress is linked to the six leading causes of death. That's how serious it is. So as we see the world changing around us, it's more important than ever, in my opinion, that we learn how to adapt to stress. And one of the most important molecules in the world to help the body and mind alleviate and deal with stress is magnesium. Now, most people think stress is caused by things like work, traffic, tense relationships, politics, and all that stuff. So they focus on solutions like meditation, going to the spa, going to the gym, trying to chill out. I'm a fan of most of those things. But what if the root cause of much of the stress we experience has to do with the deficiency in magnesium? Magnesium is the body's master mineral. It's so powerful that it helps to regulate over 300 critical reactions in the body, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, stress, and even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. So if there's one mineral you should make sure to include in your diet, it's magnesium. And it's very difficult to get an adequate level of magnesium in your diet due to the depletion of this mineral in our soils, etc. So that's why I'm really excited to tell you about a new magnesium product called Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the ultimate magnesium supplement. Easily the best I've ever seen or experienced in all my years of geeking out on this stuff. It's got seven forms of magnesium, which is unheard of. So if you're ready to check it out, here's what you do. Go to buyoptimizers.com slash Luke. And once you get there, the product you're looking for is Magnesium Breakthrough. If you use the code LUKE10, you'll save 10%, but you can also save up to 40% off select packages of Magnesium Breakthrough. So again, go to buyoptimizers.com slash Luke. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S, buyoptimizers.com slash Luke. I want to take a moment to share with you an incredible discovery that human beings have been using to improve their well-being for at least 3,000 years. And I'm one of those human beings. It's a plant medicine known as kava. Now, kava has been historically used by South Pacific Islanders as a safe, non-addictive alternative to drugs and alcohol because it naturally boosts the brain's main pleasure chemicals like GABA, serotonin, and dopamine, while at the same time, strangely increasing ketone production and mental energy. This means that it provides you with a relaxed sense of well-being, but also helps you focus. Now, most plant medicines will either speed you out and make you feel all tweaked, where you might be productive, but you don't necessarily feel happy, while others can bring you down and make you so relaxed you just want to fall asleep or sit in your ass all day. So kava is very unique in that it activates parts of our biology that help us to feel relaxed and focused at the same time. 
Now, as I said, it increases ketones, which also makes it an incredible tool for fasting. This is something you can add to your bulletproof coffee in the morning to enhance that calm and focused state. And also something you can supplement at night just to relax and chill. I mean, it does have uh, you know, somewhat of a recreational application if that's what you were going for. I love to use it at night when I'm just ready to stop working and wind down getting ready to go to sleep, improve my deep sleep scores, etc. So Kava is incredible. And there's only one company I would trust when it comes to Kava. It's called True Kava. And you can find it at this website. It's gettruekava.com. That's G-E-T-T-R-U-K-A-V-A. Gettruekava.com. While you're getting your chill on at gettruekava.com, you can save 15% off with the code LUKE15. Enjoy. Luke Story here from LukeStory.com. Back at you with another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. Man, I am excited to share this one. It's called The Kava Connection, Nature's Answer to Anxiety and Mood Management with Cameron George. Now, if you're someone who's been curious about improving your health and especially mental and emotional well-being by the use of of plant medicines and find their legality an impediment to exploration, this is the show for you. This is a legal plant medicine. Now, not a plant medicine in the sense of uh, an ayahuasca or something that's going to take you out into the stratosphere of all cosmic reality, but rather one that's going to help you manage your mood, health, and so much more. A truly incredible plant indeed, and one that, uh, dare I say, uh, many people are not preparing correctly. So when I found Cameron a couple of years ago, I was extremely excited, as I always am, to find what I believe to be the foremost expert on this particular topic in the world. So we did an episode a couple years back uh, that really focused a lot on Cameron's incredible story of his own healing journey and how he came into uh, the use of this medicine. That's episode 219. Now we do get into some of Cameron's story because it's just irresistible uh, because it's uh, such an incredible metamorphosis. But if you want to uh, get a deeper dive, I'd recommend that you go back to that episode, whereas this episode really focuses on this incredible plant and its history and current use. So Cameron, who's this guy, Cameron George? Anyway, let's talk a little bit about our guest. He's a researcher, writer, and entrepreneur. He's also the founder of a company called True Kava, and they are striving to set the industry standard for quality, safety, and education around Kava within the mass market. True Kava as a company are focused on developing scalable user-friendly products that deliver the full therapeutic action of the traditional Kava drink, which is the only form of Kava that has been highly prized in the South Pacific Islands for over 3,000 years. Very long time. Cameron spent many years investigating every aspect of Kava and has collaborated with many of the most prominent experts in the world within the fields of Kava research and the historical Kava use. And the goal of his project is to provide the safest and most effective kava products on the market, as well as educate the public on the complex stories surrounding kava, explaining some of the myths, the massive variation of quality on the market, and of course, the many amazing benefits that kava can offer to the modern world when it's used correctly in its traditional form, which is what a lot of this conversation covers. So it's Cameron's initiative and really the initiative of this podcast episode to educate you on the clear distinction that the scientific literature and historical accounts have made between safe and questionable kava products. 
Here's a quick breakdown of some of the topics we cover in this incredibly robust deep dive into kava. It's history, benefits, and traditional uses, its lack of addictive potential, how traditional kava is prepared versus how they do it in most kava bars, the different types and forms of kava, and the differences between their mechanism of action and effects, the differences between daytime and nighttime strains, why true kava products are unique, quality issues leading to the misconceptions around kava, the false claims in 2001 connecting kava to liver toxicity, kava's broad-spectrum neuro and tissue protective effects, its effect on GABA-A receptor binding, calcium channel blocking, and whether or not this could help with EMF exposure, whether or not kava has psychedelic properties for processing emotional stress, trauma, etc., how kava affects sleep, the mechanism of action for improving mood and sociability, whether or not it can help reduce cravings for drugs and alcohol, and the potential benefits around withdrawal symptoms when coming off alcohol, benzodiazepines, and other illicit substances. We also explore whether or not kava can work as a nootropic for focus, which is one of my favorite uses of it. In fact, it's funny that I didn't use some before I recorded this, but uh, when I take a break, I'm going to go over and chug a bit of it myself. The incredible anti-inflammatory properties of kava, how kava can help with fat burning, and finally, what is kava's significance in relation to anxiety and fear in the modern world during this time of COVID-19? So as you can see, we really go to the depths with this particular topic, and it's one that I'm excited to share with you because as a believer in the natural world and its ability to heal us on all levels, I'm really excited when I discover something that uh, has so much evidence to support the fact that it can assist us in these ways. So if you're someone that has struggled with anxiety uh, before or after the current situation we find ourselves in, uh, I would highly recommend that you listen through to this episode. And if you feel so called to check out some kava for yourself, uh, I believe in Cameron's product. If you want to explore that, uh, he's been gracious enough to give us a 20% off discount. You can go to kavaplex.com. That's K-A-V-A-P-L-E-X, kavaplex.com. And if you enter the code LUKE20 there, you can save yourself 20%. And I think that you'll be very glad that you did. Before we jump into this conversation with Cameron George, I want to formally invite you to join me next week with second-time guest Robert Slovak. That episode's called Badass Biohacks, Deuterium-Depleted Water and Molecular Hydrogen for Extreme Health. Robert's one of my favorite guests favorite experts in the world. And you might be familiar with his uh, expertise around water, water filtration, and Quinton sea minerals from his former appearance. So definitely make sure to tune in next week. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into this incredibly informative episode with my friend, Cameron George. Cameron George, good to have you back, dude. Awesome to be back, man. I'm excited to have this conversation. The world has changed a little bit since the last time we did this. Oh my God, dude, it's getting crazier and crazier. Yeah. But we're going to help people learn how to be sane. Uh, Funny thing is I realized today as we sit here in Austin, Texas, where I have my new home, uh, the very first conversation we had was also in Austin at Paleo FX a couple years ago. Yep. And so uh, it's interesting that we ended up back in the same place having a conversation about the same thing, but in a different way, because I know there's been a lot of developments with your research into this niche topic known as kava. Yes. So for the people uh, that are going to be listening to this today, 
I want to let them know that on episode 219, we went pretty deep into your backstory, which is uh, an incredible story of healing, redemption, and uh, someone who overcame some major obstacles, mental health, physical health issues, autoimmune, all that stuff. So I want to direct people back to that episode because I think we spent about the first hour on that wild ass ride, which was, I think, really good because it's an incredible story. And anyone that's out there suffering from similar kind of issues uh, likes to hear that you can overcome it. So in the interest of us really wanting to dig into the depth of kava that I want to do today, perhaps you could give us a truncated version of your origin story, like what led you down this path to begin with. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're right. We did spend about an hour on it last time because it really is a long story. And usually whenever I do one of these more long form podcasts, we go into every detail of it because it is important to have some context as to what brought me here, you know, and what this sort of company, this project was all founded on and, you know, the significance of what, you know, I guess, you know, sort of, you know, some of the, the, the underpinning mentalities that sort of led me through are just so relevant to, you know, you know, to anyone who's, you know, embarking on the healing journey in and of themselves and trying to sort of transform pain into purpose. Right. Um, and so that's why I think that it's really important, but, you know, just like so many people um, in this sort of, you know, the circuit that you and I both reside in, you know, the personal development, health and wellness, and even outside of that, you know, today people looking for answers, trying to improve their lives. You know, just like so many people who get into this sort of these, these influencer, you know, you know, positions or, you know, um, you know, heads of companies and stuff. Um, it really is a pain to purpose journey for me. I mean, it was a tremendous pain to purpose journey. I mean, a lot of the discoveries that I made and the paths that I was forced to go down, I, I was, you know, just that I was forced to go down them um, because my back was seriously up against the wall. And I was, you know, I spent, you know, the better part of a, of a decade and a half just in just, just absolutely incomprehensible, um, you know, amount of pain and horror. And it was a, you know, you know, a tremendous nightmare sort of ascent into a, you know, a hellish chronic disease process that was so life limiting. It was it was about as life limiting as it could get, and a person still be alive, basically, right? Um, and at the time, you know, it's like while you're in the you know sort of the epicenter of it, when you're in the eye of the storm, it seems completely insurmountable. It seems impossible that you could ever get out of something like that, right? It's like I remember thinking day in and day out, just having the constant thought process going through my head that it's like you know, just the word insurmountable just, just kept coming in my mind. And, you know, uh, you know, just what would it even look like? I'd even almost even forgot what it even looked like to feel and to be able to live normally, you know? And, um, but, you know, I had such a deep, deep desire and a love for life. And I just valued every aspect of it. Just that, you know, just, just, you know, everything, you know, coming from my core basically. Right. Um, that, uh, you know, I made a decision pretty early on in the process that I was going to, you know, persist no matter what, you know, no matter what it took, I would scour the planet. I would scour every single resource that I possibly had. And I was going to fight it with everything that I had because I just had this deep underpinning sense that it was worth it on a fundamental level. What were some of the issues you were experiencing just as a refresher? I know you were you were dealing with anxiety and ended up getting on Xanax yeah. and autoimmune stuff. What were what what was the the scope of your issues and what what ultimately do you think was the cause of it? Exactly. So what the situation I ended up in is something that a lot of people today can resonate with. Basically, what I ended up in in my early 20s, I ended up in one of these 
pseudo unexplainable, unexplainable by the standard allopathic framework anyways. It is explainable, but it, it was unexplainable at the time with the resource that I had. So one of these unexplainable sort of autoimmune neurotoxic induced spectrum illnesses, right? That's a mouthful. But basically what that means is one of these underwhelming or one of these overwhelming, uh, you know, unexplainable syndromes that can't really be labeled by sort of any one name, obviously, right? So it wasn't like I went to a doctor and I could run a blood test and it's like, well, you have this. I had one of these chronic diseases that really manifested in a whole slew of different symptoms on the surface um, that you know, over the course of, you know, almost a decade, I ended up receiving from, you know, standard practitioners, you know, traveling all the way around, uh, you know, the country and stuff, um, you know, probably 20 or 30 different diagnoses, right? You know, I was diagnosed basically with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and doctors thought that I had MS and, you know, doctors thought I had, you know, early cognitive decline. I even had physicians thought that I had the early onset of Parkinson's, you know, and it's just like you get label after label and then every psychiatric condition under the sun. But basically how it manifested or how it looked, right, symptomatically and how it was limiting my life is I ended up in this situation where my my, my health completely collapsed over a period of time, but it got to a point where it reached critical mass. And I was in my early 20s. I was a high functioning person all the, um, at this time. I was actually an elite endurance athlete and, um, you know, at, you know, was, was running in college and, you know, racing marathons and doing all of these, these, uh, you know, kind of things. And, uh, and also was, you know, working multiple jobs. And so I was a very high functioning person and, um, started to get fatigued. That fatigue turned into more severe fatigue, that more severe fatigue turned into depression, not being able to get off the couch. And I just thought I was overtraining. So I've sort of backed off. It didn't get better. Things started to spiral out of control even more. I just started to get more overwhelmingly fatigued, um, you know, and then started having crazy autoimmune sort of inflammatory symptoms, crazy reactions that I was developing and eventually devolved into this process where um, I ended up in a psychiatrist's office because I was directed there sort of through the standard allopathic framework because that was, that's sort of where the unexplainables go. Oh, well, it must be, you know, you know, a psychiatric illness, right? Because we can't categorize it. You have all these symptoms and you say that you're, that you're sick, but through their framework, obviously, the standard allopathic framework, it's more of sort of a, a disease framework and sort of like, you know, a, a true assessment of the level of health of a person, right? Um, and so basically, if you're not dying, if you don't have a tumor or a lesion that shows up on a CT scan, in your brain, then you must be 100% well because they don't have the tools or the metrics to really be able to make an assessment to quantify the level of health, like the loss of health. So I was completely riddled with disease, but they couldn't really, you know, you know, they couldn't categorize it. So I ended up in a psychiatrist's office. I got prescribed a whole host of psychiatric meds, uh, the main one being an amphetamine-based med that most people are probably aware of called Adderall. And in my very vulnerable neurotoxic state, which was, you know, you know, the vulnerability of my system that was already void of energy, which that's what most of these conditions come down to is like their metabolic diseases where the mitochondria get attacked and inflammation leads to the inability to produce energy. Then you don't have the currency to run your whole body and disease tends to fester lack of health, right? So I was completely fried and that's where the fatigue was coming from and all the psychiatric lack of brain chemistry. So they ended up putting me on this amphetamine drug, which is basically like an override button to the system. It's like putting jet fuel in a car engine that's already a very vulnerable. And basically it blew out the system. But what, you know, before it completely blew out the system, um, it basically 
hijacked my personality and turned me. It brought out the absolute worst version of me in a number of different ways. And so I basically was a high-functioning person, devolved into this state of extreme chronic fatigue, got on these psychiatric drugs because I didn't, at the time, take control of my health, find my own answers. I gave up responsibility to someone in an authoritative position in a psychiatrist's office. They gave me this drug, told me it was a miracle drug. And within three months, I was living the life basically of a meth addict. Uh, because that's that's what Adderall is, just packaged in a different form, less of a concentration you'd get off of smoking crystal meth or something. So you were uh, taking radios apart and never putting them back together? <laughs> I was doing everything from going on insane buying sprees, uh, charging hundreds of thousand dollars of credit. Um, thank goodness, you know, a lot of times, you know, under, you know, amphetamine induced forms of psychosis, you end up, it ends up bringing sort of your your innermost impulsivities to life. And because I didn't have it in me to like be like a criminal or anything like that, I don't think I, thank God I didn't do any, I I did things that were mostly self-destructive, you know, charging all this money and credit. And I, you know, every impulse that I had inside of me, uh, you know, sort of, you know, you festered into some, you know, you know, crazy, you know, devolving sort of, you know, explosive catastrophe. I went and bought, you know, handfuls of exotic animals, uh, all charged on credit. And I was in college at the time and I had this, uh, you were, the, you were the precursor to the Tiger King. Exactly, right. It was like a cross between Tiger King, Ace Ventura, Breaking Bad. It was, you know, oh throw a little Breaking God. Bad in there. Because, you know, as you start to devolve into this sort of drug-induced state, obviously, both, both you know, psychologically and energetically, you know, we know this, that you start to connect with people that are that on that similar sort of, you know, headspace or, you know, you know, frequency. There's an energetic component to it. But most people understand that, right? Whenever you become a drug addict, you connect with other people that have a similar collective mentality. And then you get this sort of, um, you know, in the same way, if you're in a much more healthy, you know, inspired state of mind, you end up creating synchronicities where the create greater and greater opportunities. You connect with like-minded people and uh, I call it the synchronicity turbine, right? But that's basically, it's like a feedback loop. The same thing with drug addicts. That's why drug addicts tend to fester and grow this sort of snowball, you know, you know catastrophe of a, of, of a collective circumstance. But I ended up in that situation. I had never spent, you know, any time. I was spending my time around, you know, athletes and people that had structure in their lives. And then I got in this drug and all of a sudden bought all these exotic animals, charged all this credit. You know, I'd be up at two in the morning cleaning my floor with a toothbrush, you know, I'm tweaking out. And, <laughs> and this was just not me at all. This was totally a manifestation of the drug. So then all these unhealthy circumstances came about where I ended up around all these drug addicts. They were in my apartment. I had all this really nice stuff, right? And I was a college kid, but I just, I had, you know, ways of actually legally making money. I was like buying, I was working for an electronics store at the time. I was buying things at cost and reselling them and these kind of things. It's like, you know, which was, it was just like I was on this weird sort of amphetamine induced uh, hustle, if you will. So I ended up, you know, being in that mentality and surrounded by you know, at any given time, I had my apartment full of not only very nice stuff, but animals and a lot of drug addicts, you know, drug addicts. I didn't even know I'd wake up in the morning. There's a drug addict eating pizza on my floor, you know, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, you think of like, you know, I say like Breaking Bad, there was like an episode where that happened, right? It was that kind of thing, you know? I remember that. Yeah. 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 In real life and on the show. Yeah. No, exactly. Right. And so you, you know, these things devolve into just complete chaos, right? And they just, you know, tend to amplify themselves. So basically, I ended up in this just absolutely nightmarish catastrophe of a circumstance. And it was really, uh, it was really phenomenal how quickly things accelerated in the negative you know, you know, direction and laded me to just totally crash. 
So obviously being physiologically sick going into it and then overriding my body by, you know, you know, taking the drug route, the artificial sort of, um, you know, approach of, you know, basically what you're doing when you're taking a drug to, to cover up a deficit. It's like borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today with your, with your chemistry. If you take a drug like Adderall, um, it gives you this massive release of dopamine and norepinephrine and these kind of, um, you know, focusing neurotransmitters and these energy things. But it's not creating any more of them. It's just using up your stores, you, you know, your energetic stores, like pulling and it's releasing, right? So um, it's, it's like charging credit. It's like you're bankrupt. Your brain chemistry is bankrupt and you charge on credit and then eventually it catches up to you and you go off the drug, your bank account's empty and that's called withdrawal because you don't have any of your own chemicals basically you know, available in your synapses for you to actually maintain even a normal level of stability and happiness and just the normal like emotional framework that comes from a healthy set of chemistry. And it's catalyzed back at the cellular level and even you know, beyond. Um, so you know, basically, I ended up in this, in this you know, circumstance where not only had, did, did my life break down you know, from a financial standpoint and, and from a physical standpoint, from a mental, emotional standpoint, because a whole host of things happened, People, you know, came into my apartment. I had thousands of dollars like stolen from me at that time. And I had all this stuff charged, you know, and I, I, I you know, my life just got wiped out. So I ended up basically my health completely crashed um, and I'm left in tremendous debt. I'm left with absolutely nothing. I'm left with a, a truckload of emotional trauma and all because I was really just trying to feel better. And I ended up in an allopathic sort of psychiatrist's office trying to get help. You know, and uh, so I didn't intend for any of that to happen, but I ended up in a situation where I had literally nothing. The only thing I did have was I had a tremendous support system, and that's what I was blessed with the most in this life. So, where I had a support system that sort of came together as a team, and that's sort of what we do when one person is down. We all come together and we, we figure it out, and everybody has their role. And the other thing that I did have is that I happened to be wired in a way just as I was willing to push forward to try to find an answer and went in the wrong direction. I, I always did. I, I had that, and, and, and you know, Paul. Part of this came through, you know, my upbringing, and, and part of it came through, you know, earlier discoveries in unhealthy contexts, uh, you know, with with plant medicine, you know, like psilocybin, experiences with psilocybin, and you know, other DMT, you know, containing uh, substances that that gave me a level of perspective uh, that just made me value life on such a fundamental level, right? Um, and that that you know that just sort of instilled within me sort of a sense of the sacred and how important it is and how like, you know, that we live in this beautiful, amazing, majestic sort of garden of a planet. And we're so gifted just to be incarnated in a human body or however you see that. Um, And that it's worth giving every breath, everything that you have at any moment to fight for it. And, you know, to fight to be here to fulfill, uh, you know, the greatest purpose that you can to make a contribution um, which I, I discovered through my process is really the, it's the, it's the vector, you know, to actual happiness, these things, you know, these impulsive things that you can do the difference between happiness and pleasure, right? You know, I mean, pleasure is excitement. It's just doing things to feel in the moment, usually because you're, you're numb and you're, you know, retreating from trauma and things. Um, but you know, and you know, this is a Tony Robbins thing. I've heard Tony say this before that, uh, you know, what you accumulate in life won't make you happy, but who you become and what you contribute will. So growing and giving are the two things that bring fulfillment, which I believe throughout my process or, you know, that's where true happiness comes from is obviously you grow so that you can give because you can't give what you don't have. 
And I've been completely bankrupt at every level, physically, psychologically, emotionally through my process. So, um, you know, I, and, you know, because of, you know, experiences that I had that were instilled within me, thank goodness, which I believe was part of the, um, uh, which was part of, there was, there was purpose to, to all of it, I think, you know, um, at a higher level of reality. Um, but I had, it seemed like a perfect storm, you know, that made no sense. And it, and it, you know, when I ended up in this position where I had nothing and it looked like my life was over on paper, right? Cause I didn't think there was any way I was going to be able to pull myself physically out of this where I ended up. Um, but it actually was a perfect storm from the positive standpoint. Cause I had everything that I needed and I had all of the, the pressures to pull out of me, um, you know, what was really inside of me and what's really inside of all people, I believe, you know, at our core is, is just this amazing potential and this amazing inspiration, you know, for what we are fundamentally. Um, and I sort of had that awoken within me, not only from experiences, like I said, I had through like plant medicine and different things leading up to, you know, me getting sick. But then also when I had everything taken from me, there's something about being back into a corner and pressure, squeezing that out of you, that necessity will do. And I just had the right combination of events and I was wired in a certain way. Maybe it came from being an endurance athlete and having that persistence and everything and that just sort of go, go, go and just wanting to just, you know, succeed and everything. But once I ended up in this position, I was willing to do whatever it took. So basically I ended up in a situation where my, you know, eventually the amphetamines brought to me to a point where my body was completely fried. I couldn't even get out of bed. I really couldn't couldn't walk. I mean, I could physically walk. I could barely support my weight. I, my brain was so fried. Um, I even got a spec scan later on that was comparable to like 80 year olds with dementia, what the radiologist said, and you're similar to what you know, Daniel Amen <laughs> yeah, does. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he, you, he gave me not that bad of a, <laughs> a, a diagnosis, but yeah, he, he said, your brain's not doing so well, which yes. I, I was shocked actually after all the stuff I've done. Yeah. I was like, what? How is that possible? But I think I fixed it since then. So yeah, yeah those those scans are a trip though when you get those because you they are. You know, you get a, a realistic view of what's happening in uh, your from a, brain yeah. circulation wise, you know. Circulation, metabolism, and so you just get to see and you're like, I got work to do still. And there's there's plenty of, uh, available, especially today. Uh, you know, especially with the resources, you know, that like, you know, the people like you and I have um have have come across and things. But yeah, so I was in this situation where um you know, my worst dysfunction was my brain dysfunction uh, because, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, those drugs are toxic to anyone, but I had about the worst outcome you can have and still survive where it basically, it fried my brain metabolism and it, it created a lot of, you know, micro blood vessel damage in my brain um, from the toxins I was exposed to from the, the animal. I mean, a lot of exposures that even led up to me being that susceptible to, to going after that, right? It's never just one thing. It's this, this litany of different things. Um, but, um, I had cognitive dysfunction that was so bad that at points right after the whole Adderall escapade and I sort of realigned my perspective and there was a few things that came together that sort of got me out of it, that got me to stop taking the Adderall and change the trajectory. And it was actually plant medicine, uh, another experience in psilocybin where I sort of allowed me to objectively see everything on the table and everything I had done and giving up my responsibility to this and understanding where health came from. I had this amazing experience that at the drop of a hat made me quit Adderall the next day and leave that entire life and say, no, I'm going to get this thing back. It was just so profound. That was really the first time plant medicine had saved my life and Kava did later on, which um, I'll, I'll get to. But, you know, so basically, you know, I, I, 
of course, I was in the situation where I had a newfound perspective, but I, I, my, my, my faculties, my physical faculties, I had no resources physically because I was just completely shot. And so this autoimmune spectrum illness that I was in, I, I, my cognition was so bad at one point that I could barely recognize people in my family. Like I would have these lapses where I was not wow. recognizing people. I couldn't leave the house because I'd get lost in my own. I had to move back in with my parents. They were like taking care of me. I'd go out in this neighborhood I grew up in, you know, 20 years and um, I'd get lost. I, I couldn't, I, it was terrifying. But yet I, I had my cognition in place. Certain parts of my brain, which I found out later from the scans were intact to the point to where I was fully aware of what was happening. I always had this awareness of exactly what was happening. So, uh, so at least that gave me the means to fight, but, but every second was like torment, you know, the kind of cognitive dysfunction, the confusion and trying to navigate that made the simplest tasks like monumental tasks. You know, there are times where brushing my teeth, I would get confused and just, it was just, it was just a complete nightmare. So that started the whole odyssey of like, I spent all of the energy that I had, all the cognitive energy that I had to just scour medical and scientific literature. And because of, I already had, I already was somewhat savvy on the human performance level, you know, or I had an interest because of, you know, being an endurance athlete and stuff and sort of knowing the basics of nutrition. And I realized I didn't know near as much as I I thought I did, right? Being a young kid at that time. Um, But yeah, so I spent just years scouring medical and scientific literature, traveling around to different doctors, exhausting the rest of the allopathic model, pushed away drugs as much as I could, you know, even medications. Um, Eventually, obviously got no help. And so then sort of spread out into the, you know, the functional medicine sort of integrative model, went around that circuit eventually got integrated with a network of doctors where I, I formulated a multi-therapeutic approach that uh, really made sense to me from, a, from a, a foundational standpoint, but couldn't tolerate anything that I was doing because by that time, I'd become so sick and inflamed that I was having these crazy autoimmune reactions to almost everything that I was eating or coming into contact with, which was horrific. And they got so bad that I was having like 10 seizures a day from, from different various different stimulus in the environment. I was having anaphylactic reactions. So I would eat a bite of food and I would go into anaphylaxis. And so obviously I continued to get weaker and it, it would just turn into this, this disaster where I couldn't get leverage over my reactions to even be able to do the things that now I knew would have a likelihood of even giving me a chance of making it out of this. Um, and that's how I came across Kava basically was I was on heavy doses of benzodiazepines against my will, by the way, because at this point I'd been through the whole drug thing. I didn't want to, but to control the seizures won't do anything. Um, and, you know, benzos are one of the most pernicious, addictive, egregious pharmaceutical substances that we have, like in the, you know, uh, you know, modern pharmacopoeia. And, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, the opiate epidemic, which is a huge problem, massive problem. But the benzodiazepine epidemic is uh, almost just as big. And uh, benzos and alcohol are, and opiates, but, you know, benzos and alcohol especially are the two drugs that you can really die from the withdrawal process. I mean, you can go into full-blown seizures. And so, when I was taking these drugs, it was very scary because I knew they were going to lose their effectiveness. And once they did, uh, I was already having seizures and they would stop and I was weak and the seizures were becoming lethal. Um, so I was in this period of time where I had to find a strategy out and I had only a few shots at this because the time, I was on a time, it was like a race against time, right? Because I was deteriorating very quickly, spending long periods of time not even being able to eat or periods of time not being able to drink water, days at a time, almost died from dehydration because the reaction. So... I was working with one of these doctors in our network and um, was trying to find, I knew at this time I'd spent years just 
going through and trying and doing everything before I got that sick, you know, from end of Adderall to like this whole thing. It was like eight years. Um, so I, I'd gone down the road of plant medicine and every adaptogenic herb and every herb for this and that and gone through and read Christian Rash's encyclopedia of psychoactive plants and done all kinds of research into mechanisms and things. And I knew, I was like, I need to find a plant-based analog to a benzodiazepine, right? So I can sort of transition off of this. Um, and, uh, and I didn't really expect to find it <laughs> because, you know, you know, something that powerful. But I went down the list again and obviously tried the medical cannabis route and CBD was kind of, was barely making it into the scene at that time, you know, as far as like even being known as something separate or different. None of that worked for me. I mean, it worked mildly, but uh, THC had an opposite effect on me. It was very inconsistent. It was too stony. It would make me react and all kinds of stuff. And then obviously the standard herbs, most of them just weren't, you know, they're good for average everyday circumstances. The things that bind to this, the same receptors as benzos and alcohol, it binds to this pathway called GABA in the brain, which is it's basically most people, a lot of your listeners probably know it's the, it's the brakes of the nervous system, right? Glutamate's the most excitatory neurotransmitter. GABA is the most inhibitory or calming. And it's still like this, this seesaw and it's very carefully balanced and regulated. They're both important, but whenever you're sick, you go sympathetic and you get primed and reactive and inflamed, your body favors these reactive glutamate states. And when it gets out of control, it damages and creates this toxicity and that causes seizures and, and at its greatest and at a much lower level, just disease. Um, so yeah, so I was trying to find something that could prop up those receptors that could be like an off-ramp for me that wouldn't be addictive and toxic. Um, all the standard compounds, valerian root, passion flower, lemon balm, and any of those things I mean, that's sort of like, in my situation, was like trying to take down an elephant with a BB gun, you know? It's like shooting a BB gun in a freight train. It's like, it's not happening. Uh, so, um, I, you know, I'd come across kava before, obviously, but I had had the stuff from the health food store. You know, in the, in the United States, a lot of people who have heard about kava have seen it in the form called kava kava. And I, you know, I got in touch with an indigenous person from the South Pacific, and this is where kava, the home of kava, where it comes from. Um, and you know, so kava is a, a plant-based anxiolytic compound that does bind to these GABA receptors um, that you prepare it from the roots and you prepare this, this sacred drink that's been drank for 3,000 years in the Polynesian islands, Fiji, Vanuatu, Tonga, even Hawaii. Um, so I came across a source in the islands and was talking to one of the indigenous people and they're like, well, you absolutely should try kava. That's like the obvious choice for this. Um, even though they couldn't explain it on the scientific level, it would, you know, there's an understanding there. And I said, well, I have tried kava. And they said, what'd you try? I told them and they laughed and they said, okay, the, you know, that's not true kava at all. That's not real kava. Um, that's, that's a westernized, you know, cut down version. And they're calling, it's a kava-like product. It's basically a fraction, maybe 5% of what you'd get from like real kava. Um, so I was like, well, okay, great. You know, and so I had them send me some of the powder. They sent it to me in a totally sort of, you know, primitive form that like they prepare. It's this bag of root powder and they put it in a strainer bag and you have to knead it into a bowl of cold or hot water, you know, for, you know, 30, 45 minutes. And I ended up with this bowl of muddy water, <laughs> which you've had, we've all had before, you know, and uh, it tastes, uh, it, it tastes like hell, you know, but um, I was actually glad to have it because once I started using it, um, within two weeks, I was just totally blown away by it on so many different levels. Uh, there's, you know, you know, what it did for me psychologically, what it was doing for my nervous system and everything. 
And, you know, after two months, I was virtually completely off of benzodiazepines and my seizures and convulsions were done, right? I mean, 85 to 90% and within a short period of time after that, never even had another one. Like to go from that level of severity in that kind of situation. And so to be able to taper that quickly off of something like a benzo that normally takes minimum a year, year and a half, if you're successful and to be able to do it with ease whenever it was like, it was just a miracle, right? It was almost as if, you know, the intelligence of nature had provided a direct answer to this problem, you know, and these things sometimes tend to surface in the public consciousness at times in which they're most needed. And kava, uh, from a mechanistic standpoint, is really a protective substance. It's a, it's a substance that, proce- that helps to process and neutralize trauma, you know, every form, you know, chemically, physically, psychologically, emotionally. Um, it plays that role in the environment. It's protective in the environment, so it develops the chemistry to be protective across all of the, you know, of the natural ecology, you know, across all of biology. So when we take it into our body, it transfers that sort of essence to us from like a philosophical perspective. And we know that from the scientific literature that that's absolutely correct as well too. So it was absolutely amazing for me, and that's really how I came across it. Which uh, I know we were only going to do a small synopsis of my story, right. but <laughs> it's dude, it's such a great, and I'm sure the first time was a different version anyway, but it, it was, yeah. it's such a great, and it was more in depth even. Um, it's such a great story though. And I, you know, like you, I've overcome some pretty nasty stuff and many of the listeners um, still deal with some of these issues. I can tell from emails I get and direct messages on social media and stuff where people have these mysterious autoimmune issues or they're dealing with anxiety, especially in the era that we find ourselves in now. So I think it's a a really great setup and important for people to hear, man, because I know there's someone listening to this right now. Well, not right now. They'll be listening to it in a few weeks, but someone's going to be hearing your voice going, oh my God, there's a way out. There's hope. I mean, whether or not they take the exact route that you did, but it's Incredible to know that the human being's resilience capacity is what it is. And it's that, um, you know, hundredth monkey thing, right? Where enough of us start finding a way out through the alternative means that you just discussed after hitting brick walls in the allopathic realm Mm -hmm. and psychiatric realm that I think if you hear enough podcasts of someone like you or someone like me that's really made it out of some really dire circumstances more and more people are going to go, you know, it sounds crazy that you can just take some plant and it's going to fix you, that that's kind of the way out for all of us. Mm -hmm. And also love what you said about how, and even though (laughs) I consider myself pretty woo-woo and and definitely spiritually minded, um, I've always kind of had a strange time resonating with this idea that the spirit or intelligence of plants would dictate where and when they're going to appear in a culture, right? And many people in the psychoactive plant medicine space will say, oh, you were called to do ayahuasca or mm-hmm. ayahuasca wants to come out of the jungles of South America and enter Western society and, you know, sort us out. And I've always looked at that like, well, I mean, does a plant really know like what it's going to do? Um, but it's interesting how you framed that with kava, where it's not only what it's done in your life, but just how it, interacts in its own native ecology. I think that's Mm -hmm. really interesting that that plant kind of has its role in its own ecosystem. And then that model, I guess, as you described it, can also be transferred 
to the human body ecosystem, which is really, really interesting. It's a very compelling idea. Give us a little bit of the um, history of its use. You mentioned that people have been using this for 3,000 years. <clears throat> what are the records like in terms of, is, is it just those few uh, islands or has it been found anywhere else? Was it something that was uh, traded in the spice trades and things like that? Or is, is it really just kind of segregated um, to those areas and how far back does it go? And is there, are there any other uses for it that these people are, are um, growing it for? Does it have any other utilitarian purpose or has it always been just a, you know, a, a mildly psychoactive healing plant? Yeah. Yeah. You know, as far as where it grows, I mean, kava is pretty much, it's, it's pretty much exclusively isolated to the South Pacific because of the role that it plays in the natural ecology, it needs very specific conditions um, to grow and survive. It takes five years minimum to get a mature kava plant that can actually play the role that it needs wow. to play, which it's Damn. very different than hemp in that, in that regard, right? In you know, you know, many other plants that are you know, very popular. And obviously kava plants, they, they, uh, they kind of age like wine. So if you're drinking kava that's harvested from a plant that's 11 years old or 20 years old, then you're going to get a more robust um, you know, biochemical profile with more depth of the overall experience, the protective and the psychological underpinnings that it gives you from a subtle entheogenic standpoint, which I'll touch on as well. Um, but yes, so it mainly, it, it grows in Hawaii, Fiji, Tonga, um, you know, Papua New Guinea, these places that are all sort of this island chain in the South Pacific. And we really don't find it anywhere else uh, because it takes so long. It's a perennial plant. So it needs to have these perfect conditions for a long period of time, which really exists near the equator, you know, and, uh, you know, these, these places that, um, that uh, you know, it ends up growing. There been, and the soil conditions and stuff too, just like with anything, um, We've experimented. I know a lot of people who've experimented trying to grow it, you know, you know, bring plants and grow it in Costa Rica and some different places. Um, it's difficult because there's a complexity there just like most everything else in the, um, in the modern sort of dialogue and discussion that ends up being oversimplified. I think we can just take this one chemical here and this. It's going to solve a problem that's enormously complex on, you know, underneath, especially interacting with human biology which the whole thing is an integrated you know, system through which we barely understand. We understand certain sort of edge line aspects of it, the human body and plants and the full ecology, but it's an intelligence that it's sort of like a single neuron inside of the brain trying to comprehend the complexity of the entire brain, right? If you kind of see like the, from the Gaian principle, right? You know, the earth is being a li giant living, breathing, integrated, intelligent organism, you know, system, which even going back, you know, even for a second this is a, a, you know, just, just interesting point. Um, you know, even the idea that certain plants can surface at different times, it does kind of sound like a woo woo concept, you know, whenever you think about it. And it may very well be because it's not something that we can objectively be like, oh, this is happening. It's more of a, uh, you know, an interesting thought exercise or from a philosophical perspective. But if you buy in, you know, intuitively to the idea that we are living on this living, breathing, intelligent network of an organism, and if you buy into the idea that basically the living organisms are like individual neurons, just like in a brain system, right? And the whole system has an underpinning intelligence through which is, is interconnected. There's no separation. The separation is an illusion. We all know that even quantum physics, that we're all energy. We're all an expression of energy that takes this sort of experiential form of solidity and that we all are connected through this sort of base sort of energetic fabric or framework. And if that is the case, and you know, if a plant were to surface at a time of great need, 
it would be in the same way that, you know, you know, a new brain cell would surface at a certain time in which there was an injury, right? Because the whole system is sort of orchestrating this from underneath, right? And so there's an intelligence there that collectively um, through various signaling processes that, uh, you know, resonate through the entire collective consciousness that possibly, you know, could orchestrate things happening, right? You know? I and I've always I'm not saying that that is the reality. It's just that's an interesting a badass analogy, though. Actually, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so you know, for people who sort of just you know resonate sort of with the guy in principle, right? That there is no separation between anything. And a lot of people have these these same consistent experiences, like say under plant medicine, um, you know, states of consciousness, where you get this dissolution of boundaries and you get this undeniable feeling that we are all one collective sort of, you know, energetic vibrational, you know, consciousness that has taken form and sort of orchestrated itself in this perfect synergy on this plane and this place and space and time, you know, that we're, that we all sort of resonate in. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, it, um, it makes perfect sense to me as, as a possibility, you know, that that could happen. And, uh, you know, certain medicines, I believe from that, and I think, you know, I've heard, you know, individuals who are, um, you know, enthusiasts for, you know, the therapeutic application of these psychoactive medicines, like Dennis McKenna and others talk about this, um, that, uh, you know, that, that certain plant and fungal compounds are just an expression of that system. And they're sort of appointed, just like the body appoints certain cells to orchestrate different processes to fix and balance things out in the time of great need. Or it's a living organism. Certain individual organisms could be appointed as the spokesmen that could communicate with other organisms, just like one brain cell communicates with another, um, but not through verbal language, right? Because higher vertebrates do that. That's just our way of existing. They could communicate to us through chemistry because these things contain human neurotransmitters, the same signals that reside in our brains, like with the psychedelics, the tryptamines, right? So they plug in like a lock and key and they could open us up, open our brain antennas up from the perspective, which a lot of people within this framework subscribe to as the brain possibly being more of like an antenna, more than a generator of consciousness or, you know, um, where, you know, if you can lift these sensory gating mechanisms that uh, can get lifted while you're under the influence of certain plant, you know, medicines or these organisms, um, then you can jack in and you can, you know, communicate more to the, the whole underpinning substrate of the entire intelligence, just as a cell in the body, like, you know, it's connected to the underpinning intelligence and it knows which cell to coordinate with and it knows how to coordinate to build new tissues. And it's the same reason why your heart automatically can beat and you can breathe because all of these trillions of cells are coordinating inside of a field, basically, a communicative intelligence that's underneath it. And they just instinctively jack into this collective intelligence that sort of organizes and harmonizes, right? Um, And so, you know, from that perspective, under the influence of certain plant medicines, I think it's perfectly possible that uh, we might be able to open up a, you know, a, a greater connection to the, the foundation, the underpinning of, of the, the energetic fabric of where we come from, um, wow. which is why a lot of people have experiences where they all of a sudden, you know, uh, you know, after they go into these states, whether it be from plant medicine or, you know, disciplinary practices, where they can easily start to manifest more what we call synchronicity in our lives, you know, um, where, in, and that really comes, if you think about what synchronicity is, right, it's like, you know, it's, it's like you've connected to the underpinning framework, right, that sort of, that substrate of reality, source, whatever you'd call it, God even, um, and 
if, if you're connected to that, that thing of which we all are, it's like, we're like the apple on the tree, right? And that whole thing, it's like, when you, you connect to that, you know, the whole thing, it's, it's working for you, right? If you're aligned with it, then you can sort of, you know, go into these sort of what you're trying to get into when you get into flow states um, where, you know, the needs of, I guess, your highest self, you know, can more easily manifest. And then you can create the circumstances by connecting with, with other aspects of the environment, people, places, circumstances that, that bring back, you know, the necessary opportunities. Um, and from that theory, if, um, if, if that could be the case, then, uh, in consciousness was not localized to the brain. And it, there really was a collective consciousness that under these states we jack into it is, it would, you know, all intelligence, right. You know? And so if we're all connected, that's where the idea of just being able to, um, to access your higher potential or what in religious circles we would call connecting to God and getting in divine inspiration and getting tremendous ideas that you can, you know, retrieve, you know, uh, from the deepest parts of yourself. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people feel as though that's made possible whenever you do that. So I know that's kind of a little rabbit trail, but I thought- No, I love you, it. It's brilliant. I was sitting here, uh, your dad's in the room and I, I'm thinking, man, if you were my kid, I'd be so proud of you. <laughs> this kid is smart. <laughs> really, man, that's a really amazing, amazing breakdown and, and, and way to look at that. And I, I think you might've just convinced me of this- you know, this inherent intelligence when you look at it from a system. And I think that's where I've sort of been blocked as I look at this plant here and I'm going, this plant didn't decide to end up in the living room, right? Or or into my life or in my stomach or whatever the Mm. case may be. But looking at the systems approach of that, how there's one synergistic, one thing, right? The Vedic Mm -hmm. allness, the everythingness. And then there's just single points of consciousness or awareness coming out of that substrate that then manifest as a thing. And so when we see that thing, we think, well, that thing can't do anything because it's just over there doing its one thing. Yeah. But in fact, there's an inner connectivity of all things. And from that perspective, that makes a lot of sense. That's very cool. I'm going to, I'm going to mull that over. I think that's pretty amazing. Um, now what I'm wondering about with this Kava, like many people are wondering mm-hmm. Uh, is the potential risk of addiction. You know, if you're taking mm. something like a benzodiazepine or an opiate, um, there is, of course, you know, nobody wants to be addicted to something and need something. Mm. But when we come up with the substitute, uh, there's the risk of addiction, such as with the other great plant medicine, Kratom or Kratom. Mm-hmm. A lot of people pronounce it different ways. I learned from a person from Thailand, they call it Kratom. <laughs> but people call it Kratom, Kratom. But uh, I've heard, now I've never gotten addicted to it uh, and I use it somewhat regularly, uh, but I've heard many people have gotten addicted to it coming off opiates and they start taking Kratom because it's you know legal and just less destructive and toxic. It's totally natural. Mm-hmm. But then they get dependent on that and then have withdrawal symptoms from that. So with Kava, uh, is there any historical record of any addiction uh, potential with that? Or is this something that one could use as like a tonic herb and be totally risk-free of ever becoming at least physically dependent on it? Right. So no, (laughs) basically uh, Kava has 
literally never been documented to elicit any level of addiction whatsoever, both from an anthropological uh, you know, assessment standpoint or in the scientific literature. It's well known as a very non-addictive substance, which is really interesting and has to do with how it works from a modulatory standpoint. And that goes back to plant intelligence, even everything that we that we just went into there. It's actually really relevant even, and it's a good sort of underpinning or understanding of sort of how um, the natural ecology can structure um, you know, things to perpetuate life, to create sort of a symbiosis and sort of a, um, you know, a homeostasis that brings about these complex living systems that live, right? That's what, you know, everything in reality is all about survival and adaptation. And then also, you know, on a deeper level, um, you know, you know, purpose and, um, you know, you know, generating a, you know, the high expression of what we would call life. Um, and so with, with these plant medicines, the main thing that differentiates them from pharmaceuticals and the reason why a lot of them are not addictive, some of them can be, like you mentioned with Kratom. And even Kratom, it's a level of addiction is a far cry from what you get with synthetic opiates. Um, you know, it's not like everything in nature in this sort of, there's not like a, like a kumbaya reality to where everything in nature is totally benign and we just eat it all. We, we know that this is not the case. Just like Every person in the world is not someone you want to form a relationship either. I like to think of any plant that you're using or taking into your body as forming a relationship with it, right? And there are some, just like there are some people that are not ready to have a relationship form with them or they have defense mechanisms up and they're not someone that you can really connect with. They'll fight you or whatever. And they're just, you know, someone who's better off left alone. Uh, you know, plants are the same way, right? You know, they're available and they're living organisms and certain plants we can form relationships with and certain plants have developed adaptive qualities in the environment. And I do believe from the conversation earlier that certain plants possibly can surface to have a purpose both in the natural ecology that can transfer to other species like us and the planet. But that being said, um, because they're living organisms and because these plants that are available, that are, that are more compatible with people, um, they've co-evolved with people and you know, with, with organisms in their environment. Um, they are a complex living system, just like the human body is a complex, intricate living system as well, right? So that, you know, they just have a wide variety of active living constituents that form this sort of matrix, uh, which it's a system, it's a subsystem, and our body is a system. And the systems came out of the same underpinning, the same intelligence, and so they're, they're system compatible. The reason why addiction happens with pharmaceutical drugs is because mainly because most of them are ripoffs of who we have in nature. So it's kind of like the idea of going back to even that principle of like, we live on this planet, right? And we're like individual neurons, right? In the mind of this, of this living system or this living world. And we think that we're going to go off and try to, you know, take a massive shortcut by ask, you know, isolating something that's living from the environment and, you know, creating sort of like a deviation, isolated form of it. Um, and there not be consequences to it. Because when you hack it, it's sort of like, that's, that's kind of like a hack that actually can be useful. Like pharmaceutical drugs are useful in acute circumstances usually. Um, I mean, some are totally not useful, but some can be like general anesthesia or, you know, even opiates and things, you know, acutely after you have a surgery or something like that, antibiotics, you know, there are all these drugs that can be useful because they're acute interventions that are single molecules. So what's happened is, you know, usually how you produce a pharmaceutical is you, you take something from a plant medicine you say, what's the most, you know, the most active constituent that a pharmaceutical company will usually isolate, synthesize, and then patent. And they like to change it, obviously, because then it makes it patentable. It's part of the business structure. Um, and then that makes it very, very potent. But the problem is it's taken away 
all the checks and balances in that whole living system. It's like if you were to isolate one cell or one hormone from your body and give it to a person, you know, it's very, very different than if you were to take out a full matrix of, say, stem cells and give it to a person, right? It's a very, very different thing, right? Because now you're not giving us a full system that has all the checks and balances to protect it from doing too much or going too far in the body, taking away the, the, the system modulation. You've taken away the intelligence. You just sort of isolated one thing from it. Um, and that's basically a benzodiazepine is a totally synthetic substance. An opiate is a derivative of you know, opium, obviously, and they've made synthetic versions of it. So it's one molecule with one linear mechanism. It goes inside the body and it sort of pushes the entire system like an assembly line. If you think of like the chemical reactions in your body as like assembly line, you know, one thing is handed off to the next, this chemical reaction in this, it starts at the cell, then it ends up in your symptoms, right? The opioids reduce pain and benzos calm you and amphetamines give you energy, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, um, it's like you've, you've intervened at one step in the middle of the assembly line downstream and just hacked that receptor. And everyone who's working on the assembly line is like, whoa, it throws off the entire thing. Like you get your result, right? You, you know, whatever you're wanting from that one step. So that one chemical release, but then it affects all the other systems below. So it's, it's, like, it's like hacking a computer system. You hack one line of code, but that's wired into every other line of code. So it's like you get your result that you want as a hacker, but then it ends up slowing down the entire system and distorting and creating, you know, a bunch of potential havoc. So that's, that's a general sort of explanation. It's like, that's a synthetic drug you know, compounds like kava have that sort of full spectrum, sort of biologically compatible, sort of it's, it's a living organism, right? Um, and it's one that, that humans can form a tonic relationship with, which is really, really amazing and cool. So it's always been, you know, documented, uh, you know, to be non-addictive because, you know, basically it's able to powerfully affect all of those systems in the brain, like the GABA system, like the dopamine system. And the main effects that you get off of kava are basically mood, relaxation, mental clarity. Those are the three lowest hanging fruit. Um, It doesn't, uh, like if you take a benzodiazepine, it's got that linear mechanism that not only does it hit those GABA receptors, um, but it kind of dumps the chemistry that you have, like I was talking about earlier. And then you end up depleted and horribly addicted. And because it's not like modulatory, it calms you down, but then can make you really stupid and make you tired and can affect all of your faculties at the same time. And you don't remember things. You do things you wouldn't have never done. Um, Yukawa has this amazing ability to hit on those receptors while propping up many other receptors that help increase cognition. So Kava kind of brings about this state of uh, calm, enhanced focus. And it also affects these systems like classic psychedelics do um, in the brain as well too, but in a subtle way that doesn't take you into an altered trip state. It's like an enhanced state of natural sobriety that we even know, you know, you know the Kava increases communication between left and right sides of the, of the brain, leading to this kind of systems thinking people try to get off of psychedelics, except for it's tolerable by pretty much everybody. It's completely legal. Um, it has these effects on anxiety at the same time. So there's, there's no chance of going into a bad trip or a trip at all, like from a classic definition. Um, what, what if I were to take, you brought me some of your uh, yeah. development product, uh, those, those little bottles, and I, I took one before we recorded. And I feel great. <laughs> I feel really good. What if I drink 10 of those? I mean, would I not want to drive? I mean, can you get high off kava if you tried to? Very good question. Yes, this has actually been pretty thoroughly studied too because it's been a question that uh, once it started to get more modernized, indigenous people for years before they had cars, they didn't care. But uh, um, the, uh, so, you know, basically 
The answer is in 99% of cases, no. Now, there is a, there is a, if you have a lot of kava, like if you get full blown kavafied, <laughs> like if you were to take down 20, what we call shells or 20 servings, like of say, like our shop product, only our shop product, because the shop product kind of keeps intensifying to a certain point. The, our, our, our base sort of oil product that we have, um, doesn't have the active enzymes that keep the accumulative effect. So it kind of levels off. And so anybody can take it, even kids at any time of the day, which we designed it specifically like that. It's like a food product. Um, but you know, the shots like you were talking about, yes, if you were to take 20 of those, you could get to a point in which it could be, you could be so relaxed where it could be a little bit distracting, but you never go into an altered state in which, you know, the studies show that you really get no decrease in your overall faculties or your working memory or even your depth wow. perception. So it's a very interesting, wow. you know, you, most people have never experienced anything like this. They know the really powerful synthetic substances and include alcohol in that. Um, and they know the really powerful natural substances, both of which it's like, I don't want to be taking five grams of mushrooms and driving. That's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> set and setting is important. Um, and even with cannabis as well too. I mean, you know, that's not, it's, it's, those things take you in an altered state through which we consider a deviation from sobriety, depending on your, de- your, your definition of, you know, sobriety, even though you feel more alive in a lot of ways, it's, it's distracting to a certain point. It's very visual, can take you to a different space in which, you know, the, the environment has changed. Kava is not like that. So at very most, you know, we do have disclaimers of like, well, if, if you take past a certain amount of it, go ahead and wait about a half hour before driving or operating heavy machinery, um, just as, you know, a basic sort of disclaimer. But, um, and a lot of that is being worked out to, to, to set those recommendations with the regulatory agencies. But all in all, there have never been, not even that I'm aware of, any recorded cases of serious accidents, you know, uh, from kava use. Well, I think it's really yeah, interesting that it has this um, nootropic effect, right, of the hemispheric synchronization and assisting with focus because the synthetic benzos, uh, which I used to take a bit of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I used to call value. I used to take those 10 milligram Valium just oh, yeah. like, like, like uh, what are those candy Pez, you know, <laughs> Tic Tacs. I just found those things. Yeah. Me and my buddies uh, back in the day when we were young and dumb, and we used to call them brain erasers. Exactly. Because yeah. we'd be drinking and, you know, we wanted to push it Clean a little bit. Clean the slate for the next push day. it a little bit further, you know, and take a few of those Valium. And it's like, no one had any idea what happened. Mm-hmm. You don't know where you're going to end up. The next day you have no clue what you did, where you were. Even worse so than like on a, a real like pure alcohol bender. Um, so it's interesting as you break down that, you know, chemical, um, you know, the synthetic kind of copy, carbon copy of what the pharmaceuticals are trying to get out of a plant like kava versus the whole plant. Cause the plant's intelligence, as you so um, brilliantly described, kind of knows how to round itself out. I think that's really interesting. So if there's no potential for addiction, no potential for kind of overdosing and accidentally getting super high, on it, um, it makes it very unique in the space because, again, I always kind of go back to kratom, which is another legal plant medicine that doesn't really require any special preparation or anything like that. There are extracts of it that are quite strong, um, but that you know does have the risk of being taking too much. And if somebody's kind of sensitive mm-hmm. or they just don't like the feeling of being high, or they're someone who's sober and doesn't want to be high at all that's kind of off the table for them. So I think this one's really interesting. And to the point of the potential for uh, the uh, addiction to kava, 
I guarantee it's not addictive because I have a pretty addictive personality. Uh, it's gotten better. You know, I've healed a lot of the underlying issues that I think caused that to um, to be the case. But I actually forget, and I love the Cavaplex, those little uh, mm-hmm. the oil bottles that uh, I got from you a while ago. I love those, but I honestly I forget about them. And I don't forget about things that, you know, have that thing. Uh-huh. I don't forget to take coffee. I don't forget to have a nicotine gum or whatever, you know. So it's it's interesting that something like that can really make you feel good. But at the same time, you don't start to habituate to it where you need it. I never walk around the house going, oh man, how much kava do I have left? Where is it? Did you take yeah. it? Someone stole my kava. It's like even this morning doing this interview, I thought, I think I have one of those somewhere. And it was on the counter with all my... Mm-hmm. mid-move supplements. And I thought, well, I'm going to be talking about kava today. I'm going to take some. And I took probably like a quarter of the bottle, pretty big dose. I didn't even use the dropper. But I'll probably go home and forget about it, you know, uh, because it doesn't have that pull. It's not calling to me in an addictive way, which is It's there when you cool. need it. And, yeah, and it's, it's not, cool. And it's, it's, you know, and an interesting, it's, it's so fascinating. And that's why, I mean, I've worked with almost, you know, I've I've worked pretty extensively with almost every known psychoactive and even non-psychoactive modulatory, you know, plant medicine, right, that we know of in the pharmacopoeia. I mean, I've just experimented with everything. Everything from the basic tonic herbs to all the fungal medicines, you know, everything into the pseudo-psychoactive substances to the really psychoactive substances to the Bufo? psychedelics. Actually, no. <laughs> that that I have not. So so I would say plant, right? So that's, you know, Bufo's a little a bit. Plant. Yeah, exactly. I know so, I never know what how to categorize Bufo because yeah. It's it's not people call it a plant medicine. It comes yeah. out of a, a freaking toad, uh, so it's not. And you can't really call it a psychedelic. I mean, I guess it is, but yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. I've done other shows on it, but yeah. anyway, you you've experimented a lot. Yes, yes. You know, regular DMT for sure. You know, five MEO is different, but um, <laughs> no. So yeah. So but out of out of everything that I've worked with and come across, I can't honestly say that. I've come across one plant compound with a with a better therapeutic effect to drawback ratio than kava. It doesn't mean that it's the strongest one. It means that it has the best sort of tonic and plus acute therapeutic use sort of, you know, combination one-two punch profile. And I can't think of one that's, in that sense, adding in safety as one of the factors and just ease of use and ability to spread around the culture and to, in, in versatility I, I can't think of a single compound that's more even relevant in today's climate because kava's sort of, um, you know, it's 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 sort of you know imprint, if you will, right? It's 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 characteristic is a protective substance, basically against all forms of trauma, um, and even helping to process the trauma. But something that's even that's even more, I guess, interesting about kava specifically, you know, whenever you compare it to all of these other, uh, you know, sort of plant compounds, is that it's it's starting to be referred to sort of in the scientific communities or the ethnobotanical circles as not only uh, not a drug or not only not addictive drug, but as really one of the most powerfully known anti-drugs. And, and the reason is, is because it's it gives you sort of this natural elated state of sort of natural, you know, sobriety that's just enhanced, right? Where it has these powerful effects on dopamine without being addictive, right? And dopaminergic substances, if they're depletatory, they're addictive, right? It's powerful effects on dopamine, especially in these forms like the forms I just gave you, you take higher doses of them, you get to very, very highly nootropic effects and very, very conversationally induced effects as effects on serotonin as well. 
it increases empathy. It increases your sense of connection to people. And so it's always been sacred in the islands for, for bringing about a sense of community. In fact, it's, it's a, a key foundational, um, you know, it, it formulates the key foundational fabric of the foundation of the, of the, of the social framework of these islands. It's, they see it as their most sacred substance. It's their number one export in Vanuatu really? and, and one of the main ones wow. in Fiji. And, you know, they have access to other compounds, even psilocybin mushrooms, but they, from, they have um, a, a perspective that, you know, the best medicine is not necessarily the one that hits you over the head the hardest, but the one that can be taken regularly over time, that the lessons that you get from it can be regularly integrated in a soft manner. So if, if tryptamine, classic psychedelics like psilocybin, shout a message at you, kava kind of whispers it in the background. High doses, they whisper a little louder, but... Um, but you know, there's it, it. There is something to be said about that. Not to take anything away, because all of these living compounds, all of the psychoactives, especially, have a tremendous sort of imprint. Have a have a, have a tremendous sort of um, you know essence to them, if you will. I mean, they they all have their place, right? They all have their place in time. There's times to work with certain things, and you're drawn to certain medicines and others. There's times you're drawn to an ayahuasca experience because of the sort of the, the way that, um, you know, sort of the guided feature that seems to be built into those effects. And <laughs> well said. If you are, and, yeah. and the protection against abuse while you're going through something, you need that sort of substantial intervention that's just that smack you in the face type of a thing. So it's not about this or that or that one's better than the other or anything. They just all have their place and they're different tools to use in a variety of different contexts. When we live in a world in which has, I believe, you know, you know, part of the pathology of what we experience, and there's a lot of positivity that's going on at the same time that is sometimes overlooked in times of trauma, um, is just a huge deficiency in perspective, right? A huge deficiency in the connection to who we really are. And like we talked about earlier, from my perspective, a connection to source and the intelligence that we have sort of residing inside of each and every one of us that helps us to um, be able to not only, you know, see through nonsense, but to just sort of, you know, come to um, more, I guess, you know, evolutionarily wired perspectives, right? Based on the collective intelligence that sort of resides in all of us uh, outside of any kind of uh, multiple layers of indoctrination and conditioning that happen consciously or unconsciously in a society. Whenever we sort of start to manifest what some people in the industry uh, who I've heard call, you know, nature divorcement syndrome, which I would say is probably the That's key. That's good. I like that. You know, the key underlying, um, you know, pathology or the syndrome that leads to virtually every form of of disease, degeneration, and death, and you know, you know, disconnection problems. Just just in general, right? Is that this misalignment with the nature, with the underfabric, with the intelligence of 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 us as individuals and even farther back of our natural ecology and such, which is why, you know, whenever we have cultures that uphold sort of these altered states or these experiences that help to align you with the collective sort of intelligence of the natural ecology, um, they they generally don't manifest mental illness um, and these sort of mental neuroses that we have come to you know, see is so common in the West and in sort of modern culture, at least not anywhere to the degree that we see them today, right? And they don't manifest chronic disease as much, you know. And indigenous cultures, you have more people dying, especially hunter-gatherers that we still see exist in places. More people are dying just from accidents, infections, and things, you know, that are more acute illnesses. Um, 
But, you know, with Kava being that in that very, very specific, very, very special place, I think that there's a huge opportunity with it. And this is sort of like the, the, the bell that I've been ringing with it as far as just and what's really sort of been put on my heart, what I, what I just sort of have felt throughout the entire process and really just having experience with it, observing the indigenous traditions and, and scouring the scientific literature and putting this whole puzzle together of what context and what role could Kava play in the world. Um, and, you know, I truly believe that, uh, you know, it's a tremendous tool that can be integrated into every layer and form of modern culture in the same way that coffee has been, uh, because it's tolerable by almost anyone, especially in certain concentrations that can be standardized. And it's a way of getting people some of these, these, these at least, uh, you know, you want entry level into um, these sober, introspective and reflective states of mind. It's a little bit of help, you know, that can help a person as a tool to reintegrate themselves with the depths of their psyche and um, with, you know, just, you know, sort of these, you know, I guess, you know, deeper, more, like I said, you know, reflective states of mind that can bring about a perspective that's more aligned with um, who we really are as humans. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people would like, you know, it's like everyone has like psychedelic experiences and they want everyone to have those experiences. But once you get back down to the practicality of it, um, that's just not possible, especially, you know, for, I mean, you know, odds are grandma is never going to take psilocybin. I mean, unless you have a really cool grandma, right? It's like, <laughs> when even then, right? It's like, they could be, you know, it's just those experiences, they need very specific context and they need to be extremely respected in my opinion. And um, in order to get a good outcome, they can be transformative and amazing and powerful. Um, but I think Kava has a huge context, especially in the conversation of the entire psychoactive plant medicine sphere, as not only something that could be used as an alternative, right? Um, you know, for people who want that sort of entry level, or they don't even know that they're getting it, even if you know it or not, you know, in the indigenous cultures of the South Pacific, they know that you're getting it. That's why the indigenous cultures have always... Um, talked about kava for its psychological effects way more than its physiological effects because they believe and this seems to play out as we study kava more and more that it has a net positive transformative effect on the psyche over long-term use because it brings about these integrated states of mind where you can more see the big picture internally of your life and all of its circumstances so instead of being an alert problem-solving consciousness, get things done, like a beta state, like stimulants would put you into, or just most of us are pushed into by being in the rat race of society, um, where we kind of are streamlined into seeing pixels instead of pictures, right? You know, and sort of like we're in the middle of it all and we can't see like how everything relates to everything else. And it's like, oh, wait, I'm in the middle of this and this is not a good trajectory for me. And how did I get here? And, you know, and our brain has a very good way of, in order to survive, especially in order to feel good, or especially when we're running away from trauma and so many things, to, to, to create these compartmentalized sort of parts of our psyche that we kind of like cocoon ourselves into. Addicts, this happens naturally, right? Where you totally live in this alternate reality through which is normal to you and crazy to everybody else because you're running from trauma and you've been disconnected from a deeper part of yourself and you've become so numb that you're trying to get back to that more authentic part and you don't know how. You just know that whenever you take a drug, you, it sort of simulates a feeling that you also get when you're truly inspired. And so you try to get back to that and then it leads to, it's like, it's a negative feedback loop because it melts in your mouth like cotton candy when you take the drug. You know, it's like, oh, it, it tastes good and then it's gone and I'm left empty and still hungry. 
And, you know, that whole process, right, you know, is just sort of this negative feedback thing that just can, you know, proliferate forever. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as far as, you know, as far as Kava is concerned, you know, I really think that these, these introspective states of mind are crucial, you know, I mean, in, in, the, in the world and the time that we live in, obviously in the traumatic time where there's so much confusion, where we really just need to sort of like reset everything and we need to spend time, not just with plant medicine, but in disciplinary practices and to really become grounded to who we really are to keep our sanity, to get out of the oh rat race, God. to get out of our mind a little bit. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Back in the mid-90s, when I really committed to my own health and recovery, one of the most important parts of that journey was getting into juicing. And I've had a bunch of different juices. I've gone through phases of doing juice fast and then you know, now spending tons of money at the juice stores because I'm too busy and or lazy to do it myself. But I really believe that extracting the nutrients from nature's abundance of life-supporting plants is really critical to a health regimen. However, it's expensive and inconvenient, or it used to be. Enter our sponsor, Organifi. These guys make some fantastic powdered juice blends and superfood blends that are extremely potent, very well-sourced, very pure, easy to use, delicious, and I've just been a fan of them for many years, so I'm really happy to talk about today's product of choice. It's called Organifi Red Juice. It's got 13 superfoods to support energy in a berry superfood drink. It's 100% certified organic, no caffeine necessary, and just two grams of naturally occurring sugar from the freeze-dried berries. The berry blend that's extremely nutrient-dense and antioxidant-rich. Tastes delicious and just plain water. You can literally stir it up with a spoon. So I like to use the Organifi Red Juice in that afternoon slump when I start to feel a lull or before a workout. Anytime I feel like I want another cup of coffee, but I probably shouldn't, is a time for Organifi Red Juice. It's also really convenient to use on a go. I'm here recording these plugs right now in Austin, Texas. I've got a bag of the little Organifi Red Juice packets, which is how I had one this morning. And so I really like the fact that they're not only very nutritionally dense, but they're easy to habituate into your life. It's not a hassle. It's not expensive. I don't have to go drop 14 bucks for the same juice at a juice spot and waste the glass and the time and energy. I just walk into the kitchen, pop one of these in a cup, stir it up, and I am done. So that's Organifi Red Juice. If you want to check it out, I highly recommend that you do. And I can't guarantee, of course, because I don't know you personally, but I can almost guarantee that you're going to love it. And as you drink your first cup of Organifi Red, you're going to be thinking, damn, Luke hooked it up. Thank you, Luke. So you can thank me later. But first, you have to go to Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. That's O-R-G-A-N. I-F-I, Organifi with an I, Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. And if you use the code Lifestylist, you're going to save yourself 20% off. That's Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. And now back to the interview. So true, man. I was, I was reflecting on that in, in meditation this morning because during this move, uh, <laughs> I'm very fortunate to have the, the job that I have and, you know, I don't have to be anywhere at a certain time in the morning. So meditation practice is pretty easy for me and I really love it. Uh, but during this move, I, re- I mean, there was days where I had to get up at 7 a.m. and just go and not get my meditation and I've been fine. But today I got to do a solid hour and I'm in the middle of it just going, 
I just love the void. You know, I love taking a break and just stepping back and getting out of that myopic, um, you know, task-driven, accomplishment-driven... Hamster wheel, yeah. Yeah, the hamster wheel. Or even, you know, just that um, negativity bias, thinking of oh, what's going to go wrong. I need to be worried about something, you know. I mean, I've gotten a lot better with that. But uh, most of my life, I mean, any given minute of the day, my mind was preoccupied with what was currently wrong or what was about to go wrong, mm-hmm. right? Or or what happened wrong five minutes ago or five years ago. Um but in that meditation this morning, I was really reminded of that, just how critical that is for me to be able to adapt to um, not only the changes that are present in the world, and there are always changes, and sometimes we perceive them to be more negative than others, I would say. From one perspective, what we've been through in the past year and a half or so has been largely negative for most people. Uh, but to get that perspective is so important, just as a sense of grounding and sanity. And as I came over here today, which is a 10 minute drive, I just thought, God, what a different day I have from just taking that one hour. You know, that one hour gives me 12 extra hours of feeling pretty good about my life, myself, and even the world, despite appearances at any given time. So that's such a critical point. And I think, you know, whether we're using any sort of plants or other assistance, as you said, disciplinary practices, mm-hmm. whatever it is, I don't see how anyone could live their life with any fulfillment and and hope for the future if, if we don't find a way to really unplug mm-hmm. and disconnect and get in touch with who we really are. And so I think that's, you know, one of the reasons I was so excited about this conversation is I'm always looking for tools that assist with that. The biohacking stuff and all that, it's great. I mean, it's great to not have a disease, you know what I mean? And have metabolic energy and Mm -hmm. functional mitochondria and a great immune system and all of that stuff. But that's kind of just, you know, a small piece of the puzzle when it comes to how we're psychologically adapted to our environment and experiences that we have in the world. So I love your perspective. Uh, We could riff on this forever. Um, But I do have some notes I want to get to. I've noticed over the years in certain cities, these like kava bars have popped up. I was in Sedona a few mm-hmm. months ago. I saw one there. I think I heard there's one in Austin. And um, I don't even, after our first interview, I never even go and have kava at those places because you know, I've had your stuff at home. And if I feel like taking it, and you even sent me a couple of big bags of the ground mm-hmm. kava and taught me how to prepare it. And I was making that at home for a while. I think I still have some of that actually in the garage and storage uh, from the move. but. I remember you kind of breaking it down and from that, and it's not just like you were trying to sell me your product. I mean, you just explained the reality of the preparations, the strains, et cetera. Um, when we drive by these kava bars, is there a chance that any of them are are using a quality uh, product to begin with? And if so... Huge percentage that's pretty contaminated. Um Oh, I didn't even think of that. I was just thinking, does it work? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah. Okay. So there's, you know, on the... That's another piece of it. Yeah. There's a potential quality issue, like a potency and a purity, right? There's potency okay. purity thing. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of it's contaminated for the same reason that there's mold and mycotoxin issues with coffee, but also certain islands like Fiji and some others spray a lot of chemical pesticides still. And they douse these plants with oh. glyphosate. They do a lot of, of oh, chemical agriculture. Serious? Yeah. Now, now, Vano, 
Vanuatu uses none. Everything is 100% organic, which is where we source basically all of our kava from. And anything that we do in Fiji are isolated farms through which there's no chemical agriculture being used on them. They spray glyphosate on it? Oh, yeah. Well, they spray glyphosate all around it to kill everything and blah, blah, blah. And they just dump... It, 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 there's some horrendous practices. like, And a lot of the farmers don't really even know how to even properly use it. So it, it's, it's, if you were to see it, it's, it's pretty disastrous. Um, so you know, first of all, we do everything and we partner with our own farms and everything. And everything's done organically, of course. And every, every plant is matured for at least five years you know, to ensure that it has a potency. We know single strains, which most... Um, so most of the kava in the world comes from a, you know, a collection of different brokers that just take collections and huge bushels coming from an assortment of different small farmers in these islands. And they, don't, they can't tell you, these, all the kava's mixed together, so they can't distinguish individual strains or even tell you. So there's no consistency. You go to a kava bar, you order the same thing you know, two times in a row, and it may be slightly different or maybe completely different. It may be one that gels with you that's more of a daytime kava and then the next time you get it, it's like too relaxing or it's too this or that. But, you know, the effects, um, you know, it's like there are hundreds of different strains of kava, right? Wow. wow. Uh, you know, just like cannabis and stuff. So some explain, express different ratios of the actives in them. Mm-hmm. So some are more of like these daytime ones that have more of like the dopamine enhancing effect that we talked about. More of the get your wheels turning kind of the introspective sort of the, the the stuff that still puts you in that amazing state for like creative writing or for introspection or conversation or board meetings, even, you know, brainstorming, all that kind of stuff is phenomenal with it or just reflecting. And then some are just straight up very, very heavy and very, very sort of, you can take them right before bed and you'll get the best deep sleep of your life, right? You wake up super fresh in the morning. And then there's some that are in the middle that, that aren't, that are very calming, but not sedating, but then give you that very calm, centered focus. Great for meditation and great for, even great for, for functioning because a lot of people with anxiety, that calm focus is really what you want. You want more of that alpha state instead of more of that beta-driven sort of stimulant-induced state. If you can, you know, some people do totally fine with, not even to dog on, because, you know, a lot of people do fine even, even mixing, you know, kava oil with coffee. It goes great because it increases the uptake of each one, the caffeine, and gets more of the kava lactones into the brain get a more potent experience if you put MCT in there and the MCT is the same thing. Really? So what, we're, oh. what, what we've been talking about a lot is like a further upgraded bulletproof style coffee um, where we really believe that, uh, you know, kava oil has a huge application as being in that mixture, you know, in that sort of powerhouse mixture of, you know, kava oil, coffee, and MCT. It makes this amazing synergy because it suppresses appetite. Kava also suppresses appetite and increases fat burning and induces cellular autophagy, all these things that people are trying to get with Bulletproof Coffee to increase their, the, the ease of their fast. Kava takes that stuff to a next level. So that's kind of like a side note about it. But as far as like, you know, the quality and the differentiation between strains, the problem with going to a kava bar is, is most of the kava bars don't have consistent supply. And they're not working directly with farmers. They're not growing their own kava. So they're getting just random mystery batches a lot of times of, of different kavas usually they're trying to find the strongest, hardest hitting kava as possible. When you do that, uh, you, first of all, you can get kavas that are closer to wild kavas and you want actually more domesticated kavas. In a lot of ways, we like wild plants, but just like, you know, you don't want to ride a wild Mustang. You'd rather ride, <laughs> you'd rather ride a, um, you know, you know, a, a Mustang or you'd rather use a, a, a husky as a sled dog instead of a wolf, right? You know, it's the same kind of thing. Like you want plant medicines that still have enough of their wildness to where they have the potency, the vigor and the medicine in them. 
but you want them tamed to a degree that they're not so wild that they have so many of these defense mechanisms that can cause side effects and roughage. And that's a possibility. If you get exclusively like very wild kavas, which a lot of them farmers and scrupulous farmers are so they're not supposed to, um, they're supposed to have a certain chemical composition, which means that they go in sort of a framework that they're they're certified for daily use. And in fact, there's an international quality standard that's being um, you know, put together and put in place by the WHO that outlines these criteria to allow kava to be classified as a food if it meets these daily really? use criteria. Yeah. Interesting. So, so this the, is happening in the so future. So the WHO yeah. is, is, is aware that kava exists and that there's a that, niche it, industry it is, around it, it? As as strange as it is, yes. That's wild. <laughs> it is It is true. And that's something that's very positive that's happening, right? So it was because, and we can touch on, there was a debacle with it, you know, where you know, people thought that it was unsafe because some of this unscrupulous material is being used years ago. But you know, so basically you've got the quality issue. So you go to a kava bar and you don't know exactly what you're getting. You may get something that's pretty good, but you go back the next time and it's not so good. And the two main deterrents of, peop- of, of people trying to integrate kava in any large scale context into, you know, the retail setting or even in kava bars is the taste and the preparation. So if, you know, the only way that you're going to get the full kava effects is if you prepare it traditionally. So it's a drink, obviously, um, and it's prepared like, um, you know, we talked about earlier where you, you have to knead it into a bowl of cold water, do a water extraction with pressure at certain pressures, certain temperatures. So then you get all of those living constituents in there that give you this huge depth of effects. And this is why when I would go to Whole Foods or something and yes. buy like the Kava Kava capsules, it was did absolutely nothing. Right. Just like I was talking about when I first came across it and the <laughs> right. guy laughed at me. And that was because when you extract Kava through sort of, you know, westernized lab methods, right, that they think are more efficient because they get more of this one thing in them. That works to some degree with some, you know, compounds in nature. You're always going to get a little bit of a short-sighted effect, but there's some, but with Kava, it totally destroys it. Because kava heavily relies on this entourage effect, this symbiosis of this sort of living symbiosis. And the first thing that happens if you extract it with a classic solvent like ethanol or God forbid, a worse one like acetone or hexane or some of these, you know, organic solvent residues. Well, first of all, you can get the residues in there. But even if you use ethanol, it binds to a few kava lactones and leaves the rest of the supportive constituents. So basically, you end up with something that cuts down almost all of the effects. All of those entheogenic effects, all of these nootropic effects, the amazing effects on, on the emotions in the mind are pretty much gone when you do that. Um, you won't ever get that from taking one from Whole Foods. Um, right now, I'm not dogging on Whole Foods as, as a company or anything like that, but it's just, it's just that's what's in the marketplace right now. They would um, probably add canola oil to it also. Right, so. exactly. exactly. <laughs> I am docking on Whole Foods. <laughs> right. right, okay, <laughs> just, yeah. Just for that, just for that. The canola oil, I can't do it. Oh, uh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so if you get those just kava kava extracts, they're going to be that like, they're going to be basically akin to taking a cup of chamomile tea. It's something, I mean, it's but it's not, it's not kava, right? Have you guys ever thought about... Uh, you know, being entering the supply chain for select kava bars where you can ensure that they're getting, you know, a high quality product and the correct strains and instruct them on how to yes on how to make it? Or are you just are you just gonna make it yourself and supply kava bars someday or are you even doing that? Well right now we're exploring virtually every aspect of integration into the marketplace. My main goal is to establish a cultural context and a quality standard 
for kava in the modern world. So not to just try to take something um, like like a lot of people will try to just, uh, you know, in a lot of these kava bars are trying to do a good thing, but they end up being streamlined into this very niche, you know, sort of context where they they keep it in its totally sort of, you know, traditional context where it's the muddy water and it's prepared right there and it still has all of the gunk and tannins and root fibers in it, you know. And if you're an indigenous person, you're used to that. Or if you're a connoisseur like you or I, like, okay, you know. But to reach the masses or to really, really sort of sneak it in, you know, to where people start to, you know, get the effects in sort of a refreshing way that fits into the modern sort of cultural context, to popularize it, you know, to where it could become, you know, a commodity like kava, that's, it's, it's not the way to do it, right? Um, and so what, what we're trying to do is to try to capture the amazing effects of the traditional kava experience at, at several different depths and concentrations for different applications, standardize them, um, and then create trustable branding around that, uh, you know, basically to, to, you know, you, you know, to change the marketplace and to create a, you know, you know market for kava um, that's accessible to most people. Is there enough of it to have it become popular worldwide? Yes. Like something like Bufo that we mentioned before, mm-hmm. you know, the risk of sharing, I mean, to me, that's just the ultimate in human experiences and it's hard not to talk about it. But when you talk about it, people start to go explore it. And then next thing you know, you've got an extinct species and it doesn't exist yeah. anymore, right? So is there a limitation in terms of scalability of kava farming? Those islands are quite small, relatively speaking. They are, but there's a huge amount of land that's dedicated solely towards kava growth. And this is something that we've been participating, anticipating for years. And that's sort of why I spent years developing this project before we ever launched a company was you know making sure to ascertain... Um, a, a, a scalable uh, supply of these daily use premium strains to where it was totally practical and totally applicable to integrate into the mass market as we go up. And as we're going forth, more plants are being put into the ground at massive scale, you know, oh, wow, basically cool. week by week, you know, so it's, that- it's a, it definitely, it, it will be there. And it already is at a place right now where, where, you know, that's, that's, um, it could be a challenge if one hadn't navigated these 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 issues and secured them and stuff. But, but uh, we took extreme care in making sure that we had this because without quality, without safety, without purity, you, you, the reason why kava isn't already you know a, a, an American and world you know international staple like coffee is because it's so easy to screw up. You can screw it up. You can use the wrong parts of the plant. Even you can create these crappy extractions. It screws up the whole thing. It really takes this really you know. <laughs> synergistic set of circumstances to for you know an individual or a group of people to bridge these different specialties from the scientific community from you know the the you know herb extraction and engineering from the supply relationship side from the indigenous people side and to understand the cultural context of how it actually takes hold you know and you know sort of the you know the movement setting behind it which is what we're trying to do is to start basically a movement around kava use because Sort of like I touched on before, I do believe that out of all the plant medicines that we have available to us, they all are going to have amazing applications. And we're in the middle of this explosive plant renaissance right now where we're seeing even the legalization of virtually all of the major you know, plant medicines that are medicinal to the psyche. And of course, an increase in popularity in all just the physiological plant medicines, the ginsengs and the rishis and all of those. 
you know, where people are hungry for this because we have a hungry, traumatized world that's trying to reintegrate, you know, in a time of great need, right? And, you know, perspective, it's like, you know, one can only make a profound change in their life or one can only create something new if they can first conceive or perceive of doing so, right? So, you know, every profound change in a person's life or collectively in a culture has to start with perspective. So although it's not like, you know, in my experience, it wasn't just Kava that got me well. Kava was the leverage point that allowed me to tolerate things and then to do all these amazing therapies and nutritional strategies and modalities. But it, the, the, the perspective that I got from plant medicine and other practices started this chain reaction for me that led to an increased interest in basically everything that, that we've discussed here and uh, just, you know, the, you know, the appreciation for life and, and sovereignty and taking responsibility and just growing as an individual. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these plants make a great contribution. It's not the only factor, but, you know, if you look from an anthropological standpoint, from, you know, a, a, you know, historical anthropological standpoint, if we look at indigenous cultures throughout history, a lot of their highest values that make up their value structure and perspectives are largely contributed to by the altered states of consciousness that they choose to collectively engage in. Because every culture throughout history goes into altered states, whether it be through using medicine or whether it be through you know, various practices. Any spiritual practice involves altered states, you know, whether it be meditation or deep types of deep breathing, going into a cave. These are all different types of altered states because we have to get out of our minds, like you said, to get out of the rat race, to be able to sort of reset, to reconnect. Now, the quality of those experiences and makes a huge contribution when you look historically, you know, from, a, from an anthropological standpoint in what manifests in the collective mentalities and behaviors of cultures, right? So whenever we see indigenous cultures that highly prize, say, practices, disciplinary practices, or say, plant medicine, that is very conducive towards connecting themselves with the underpinning of life and the natural ecology and each other, then they have a very different value structure and they don't develop a lot of these neuroses that lead to depression and things. It's like what we discussed Holy earlier. Holy shit, that's so true. Yeah, exactly. So whenever- you, And you if, you, if you look at the introduction of, of alcohol into those indigenous cultures, I'm thinking of Native Americans and their mm-hmm. sacred use of peyote. And then Europeans pile in and be like, here, try some vodka. You know yeah. I mean? And it's like, oops, totally disrupts that whole- cultural uh, foundation, right? Yes, exactly. That's so interesting. Because, you know, human connection and interaction is one of our highest, is is one of our highest, uh, you know, aspirations, right? As living beings, we need it. It's as much of a nutrient as, as almost any food is in order to stay sane, right? We have to meet our basic human needs. It's like, you know, I heard Dave Asprey talking about this the other day as he's doing promotion for his book, Fastest Way. He talks about like the three Fs, right? You know, the, uh, you know, fear, obviously run away from scary things to stay alive. You know, you got to get your food, obviously. And that's another evolutionary point, a need. And then the other one is the other F word, you know, fertility, fornication, or whatever you want to say, <laughs> you know, uh, because those are all things that have to be taken care of. Those are the needs, but then those, you know, are taken care of so that we can get to the fourth F, which, F with it, which is friend, which is the aspiration to, to human connection, to elevate each other to the highest expression of ourselves to create, you know, a profound, amazing life experience um, to become more, uh, you know, to have a greater realization of ourselves and the collective and to do amazing things, right? To be the highest expression of ourselves. 
if there's uh, if if there's ever was a purpose, right? It's like um, I that that in my view would be part of the story there. Um, but yeah, you know, so these these perspectives um, are tremendously tremendously important, especially like in this time that we live in, right? Where we're just absolutely inundated with probably the most traumatic, confusing time that any of us have ever experienced, right? Where we have this acceleration of a lot of different things, technology and a whole host of other different, possibly even, you know, nefarious circumstances that are going on. And, you know, in order to navigate that, these altered states are so valuable, just like they were to these indigenous people, right? And I think in order to have a grounded set of consistent values and not devolve into this chaotic thing that ultimately ends up leading to like an anything goes mentality because you're so confused that you're just like, eh, whatever, anything goes. And then the craziest ideologies and the craziest thoughts and the craziest, you know, ideas start to surface out of this collective device, you know, you know, you know, the, the divide and chaos type of circumstance that we see. If we're going to, you know, move forward adequately then I think, you know, getting back to fundamentally what we are and mimicking what a lot of these indigenous cultures to create these amazing sort of, you know, communities that we have seen some historically um, that were sort of void of these mental neuroses, um, had other problems, but you're avoided these is something really interesting to look at. And That's incredible. And, and, so, yeah. and, so, and so whenever I talk about it, it's like, you know, I, I, I love to go in and to talk about like in the sake of the conversation with Kava here, um, you know, the more practical, low-hanging fruits, obviously the reduction in anxiety, the increase in mood, the, the fat-burning stuff. It's been heavily studied you know, as a um, very, very interesting compound that could be relevant uh, to fight cancer and things. It has, has a huge amount of literature on that because of the cellular autophagy and different things. So it's got all these amazing applications that are low-hanging fruit. But for me, Kava's greatest application is the net positive effect that it could have when integrated into the culture. Because I look at plant medicines as a, you know, potential pharmacological intervention that could induce, that could create an opportunity to harness a more grounded, um, you know, sort of all-encompassing, you know, you know, connected perspective, right? Uh, that's more what I would consider to be sane because I believe nature is sanity, right? You know, you get back to the core of who you are and it's just like yeah. where sanity comes from. That nature yeah. divorcement syndrome is what leads to just these neuroses. I like that nature divorcement. I still call it what I learned from Daniel Vitalis, yeah. uh, who we're, I know we're both a fan of, uh, the domestication, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, any, it's, it's like anytime I drive around, like I was driving around uh, in, in the neighborhood where our apartment is and we're next to a big hospital and I was just looking up at that hospital going, that's so weird. That hospital wouldn't be needed if we didn't live inside houses. <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? yeah. Like literally, if we ate off the land and lived outdoors, there wouldn't be hospitals. There'd be a medicine person, mm-hmm. yes, woman yeah. or man in the tribe that would sort you out if you got jacked up. And if you got too jacked up, you know, attacked by a bear or something, well, maybe you'd check out. But I think the mental illness that we see and so much of the um, degenerative disease is literally just... We're just eating food that's not food, drinking yeah. water that's contaminated. We're cut off from sunlight. We're indoors buying fake light, blue light, EMS. Everything that's wrong with us as uh, a species has to do with that thing. All, yeah, yes. Especially all of the chronic degenerative or at least the foundation diseases. of what's wrong with us. Yes. I mean, I guess right, you could, right. there's a lot wrong from mm-hmm. one perspective, but. But I think that, you know, 
the greatest transformations I've ever seen in individuals coming back from horrendous circumstances where they've been totally out of their minds and somehow they're able to pull their lives together and become an inspirational figure that just is like this, 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 this totally different thing. We all know those people. We've seen those people. A lot of these people become very influential and you know the real ones, right? Not the ones that are fake or charlatans or whatever. You know, these are people that in some way, shape, or form, they've been cut down by their adversity, their experiences, where the layers of their ego have come off and they've realigned themselves with the core of who they are. And that's where human genius is, I believe. And that's really nature because we're all just extensions of nature, just like an apple is an extension of a tree. It's like, we're all part of this thing. It's like, you know, the neuron metaphor, right? It's like, we're, we're part of this. And I do believe that realigning ourselves, not just getting out, because you can go out in nature. It doesn't mean you're aligned with it, right? You can go out camping and you could drink at, at the river, you know, and get in a <laughs> fight or whatever. You could do all kinds of things. But, um, but, but I mean, you know, actually life circumstances, whether it be plant medicine, whether it be disciplinary practices, or whether it just be through trauma and being forced into it, realigning yourself with, with you know, you know the, the foundation of the source of where all of you comes from, right? Um, and I do believe that that comes from this living collective intelligence that we all reside in. And the information is there. It's not any one of ours. Anybody who I know that's brilliant is not actually brilliant. They're just, you know, they've just aligned themselves to be able to be a, a vessel for the collective intelligence that's available to all of us. In, in my view, that's yeah. my view. You know, yeah. I, 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 I truly believe that. You know, I, I think that, I think that genius and intelligence outside of, you know, you know, crazy, um, uh, you know, uh, illnesses that, that, that don't allow the brain to even, you know, sink into that if someone is very damaged or something. But outside of that, I think that, I think that, you know, genius and competence and, you know, true power, what I would call true power, you know, the true altruistic power of, of, you know, the, the warrior as from a Native American standpoint that lives for the betterment of other people, that's available to all of us. And we can do tremendous things if we just are able to dissolve these layers of our ego and get out of these fear-induced uh, states and to heal our underlying traumas. You know? you know, basically everything about this conversation or the last you know, 10 years of my life has been all about processing trauma. And that's sort of what led me uh, you know, to Kava because uh, another quick interesting thing just about Kava, in, aside from even just the perspective standpoint, is the reason why the indigenous people saw it as so sacred is because if you can spend long periods of time in these tolerable, you know, sort of introspective states that you can tolerate and still stay grounded to reality and not go out and everything, you know, having that experience over a period of time is going to lead to a changing in the wiring of your, of, of your neural framework, right? In perspectives, that's sort of why what we see, you know, rewiring with all of these entheogenic experiences. But because it's also lowering limbic system, it allows us to not only reflect and to have this change in perspective that can rewire sort of, you know, you know, this, 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 these positive associations with all the circumstance in our lives. It allows us to reflect on our past experiences from a place of complete limbic safety. So it holds down the limbic system while we're reflecting, which over time, you spend enough time reflecting, it creates new neurological structures in your brain and can reprogram and shift the negative limbic active sort of stress association to past processes. That wow. acts as this. So, so a lot wow, of the research, that's, dude. That's that's badass. That's very well said. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these. That's really interesting. These, um, you know, a lot of the research, you know, going into the future with Kava, I believe we're going to see some of the, the the most tremendous effects on PTSD. It it has it has 
it's, it's protective on every level of human biology that we know of. So it affects the GABA receptors. Um, this, these psychological effects through, you know, these, this retraining of the brain and this sort of harmonizing of the hemispheres and stuff over time. It's not something that happens overnight. It's something that happens over, which is why the indigenous peoples have always seen it so sacred for transforming the psyche and being medicine to just make a person more empathetic and introspective over time. They saw it as, as making a person wiser, you know, and being able to come to terms with their past experiences and integrate them and process those traumas. But anyways, they, you know, but it also has all these physiological effects through the GABA system. The GABA system is, is a protective system because it shuts off the excitation. Uh, you know, it did for me with the seizures and everything like that. It's protective. It shuts off the glutamate toxicity that happens during autoimmunity. It's also a COX inhibitor, like, in, like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory without being toxic. Um, it's a sodium calcium channel blocker, um, which uh, is basically one of the pathways that gets activated by um, exposures, large exposures to you know, pernicious electromagnetic fields. We know this from Martin Paul's work. It creates, this, it creates this influx of calcium into the cell, which hyper sort of activates the cell and basically leads to the production of all these free radicals and inflammation. That's funny. I was going to ask you about that because I was, I was going over uh, the mm-hmm. notes and I saw that calcium channel blocking and I thought, hmm, I wonder if this could be a small piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. of EMF protection. I know, you know, obviously you, you can't make medical claims or I don't even know if that is a medical claim, but I'm always weary of saying things protect you from yes. EMF. Like the protection from EMF is like, get rid of all EMF. That's the protection. Well, but but yes. the calcium channel thing is one of the most problematic issues with EMF exposure. Mm-hmm. And not to mention that is, uh, as you indicated, is the depletion and dysregulation of your magnesium stores. Yes. Right? Because magnesium and calcium are like this interconnected um, opposing yeah, uh, yeah opposing partnership right mm-hmm. and that's because the they affect the, the the electrochemical gradient the electricity basically of the cell that's why right. they're called they're, why they're called electrolytes right know? right <laughs> right and you know? one of the things that that I do just intuitively and I don't I don't know that there's any basis in science for this in particular but is uh, I always pound magnesium mm-hmm. I mean just because you need it and you can't get it from food much yeah but I always have in the back of my mind the the calcium channel opening of EMF because yeah. it's just everywhere. So if I'm going to go into a really high EMF environment, like a plane or a long car ride or concert or populated area, I'll like double load or even quadruple load the magnesium mm-hmm. if my um, bowels can handle it. And um, at least it gives me some idea <laughs> that I'm helping that process. I don't know if that's true or not, but I wonder if Kava has that net effect as well, like so as it, an added bonus. Yeah, what do you think of that? It, you know, it, it is very important that we don't make any claims about specific diseases or disease processes, but what we can say is that whenever we have research, when we have scientific literature that show that there isn't that you know that there is a support on a certain mechanism, then we can refer to that, right? And we know from the literature that kava is a very powerful sodium and calcium channel blocker and it helps modulate that. And from direct experience and experience with working with a network of several thousand functional medicine doctors and seeing it in their practices, we deal with a lot of people with EMF sensitivity. And myself, one of my sensitivities that I had tremendously when I was sick, I had bad EMF sensitivity. You couldn't turn on a cell phone around me, which at the time, no one was even talking about this. So I thought, like everyone thought I was crazy. Like, Like I was like, don't turn on your phone around me. They're like, what? What's hell. Um, you know, so, but what I noticed, that was one of the things that like when I had lost pretty much everything and I was having the seizures and everything, I couldn't even like communicate with people. I was quarantined. I couldn't even communicate because I couldn't use a phone. 
And after I built up the effects and sensitized the receptors um, to these high dose Kava protocol that I was on that I sort of you know put together, um, one of the the first things that I noticed was a massive reduction in my EMF sensitivity. Now, could that just be the um, you know the cascade that 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 induces the stress hormones that leads to the actual symptoms, or could it actually be from the reduction in the damaging effects of the, because the symptoms could be a little bit different than just the damaging effects that are occurring at the cell. Because a lot of people don't have symptoms from EMF. They're getting all kinds of cellular damage, most likely, right? You know, you know, DNA damage and things and hydroxyl free radicals and all this stuff that's, that could be happening. I'm so glad you, 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 you know some of that because I'll research something about EMF and um, it's just kind of the way my brain works. Remembering details and scientific studies are not my strong suit. I sort of look at it and go, okay, that's legit. And then I just remove that information from my hard drive. <laughs> but I like that you're able to recount it. And it reminds me the other day, uh, I was watching Elon Musk on Joe Rogan and he, I was like, oh, so annoying. They were asking him about uh, EMF and cell towers and his satellites and stuff like that. And he said, there's no basis in science at all whatsoever that EMFs are bad for. You could strap 10 cell phones to your head and it wouldn't do anything. Live right next to a cell tower and it's, they're totally harmless. It's all just made up and people are just paranoid. Yeah. Oh, no, I heard the episode. Yeah. Did you, yeah. Did you want to punch him in the face? Like I it, it, you know, it, it's, 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 it's just it's, one of those things that, you know, some, a lot of people assume that because an individual has tremendous expe- expertise in a, in a specified area, that that expertise extends beyond their line of sight into many other aspects of science and mathematics or whatever they're, they're trying to engage in. And a lot of times those people are convinced of that too. And, or, or maybe it's just an opinion and he doesn't really know. And maybe he was just kind of saying it, he was having fun or whatever. I, I don't know. But you know, there are a lot of people that are in technology and you know, you know, mechanics and, and things that take liberties with making claims about biology through which they have absolutely no basis or reference for whatsoever. So they are experts in building these machines, but they have absolutely no clue how those interface with biology. And which is why I think we're going to run into a tremendous amount of issues whenever individuals start really, you know, you know, pushing forward a lot of these projects to integrate different types of technology into the human body. Uh, I think that it's kind of a, there's, there's a, um, a lot of what's not being taken into account is the autoimmunity that's going to that's going to ensue from it very quickly, and I know that even from just being around people with severe autoimmunity from just basic implants of various you know surgical things, and we know that there's almost always you know a mass cell activation right when you put something metal foreign in the body as well too, and that's just the start of it. You know, not even you know the manipulation of the electrical systems and a whole host of other different things. I also think, and, and you know, this is nothing against Elon Musk because you know, there's you know that, that's probably a complex discussion around him. But there is a difference, I think, between uh, when, when you talk about trajectories and ways that people want to you know take certain things. There is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. A lot of people have a lot of knowledge in certain substances and certain aspects, but you know, not so much wisdom. Uh, you know, this is something that I heard Dennis Prager talking about that I really resonated with, right? It's like wisdom is the ability to see and play the long game and understand the entire system and how one micro decision affects everything else. You can have knowledge of one step in a system and do it well and create something that, that looks awesome, right? It's like, you know, you know, uh, you know engineering an H-bomb takes a lot of knowledge, but not, it's not very wise. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah uh, you know, great example. You know, so it's, it's, it's one of those things that people always have to be wary of whenever they are listening to people 
to try to ascertain, and they have to make their own sovereign decision on where they really believe that that person's expertise begins and ends. Because they may be very, very good in one aspect, but then another aspect, they may be no different than anybody, right? And, um, you know, you can look at credibility and stuff, but really you have to look at the content of what they're saying and if it checks out and takes some, some, you know, some investigation. Agreed. Well, I appreciate you uh, pointing out some of the the, the low-hanging fruit of the EMF issue uh, because it's just, it drives me crazy, I think, because I'm super sensitive to it and some people aren't. And so I'm like, feel like I'm in a burning building going, hello, the building's on fire. Stop putting up these goddamn towers everywhere. And people yeah. are like, what? I got great service now. How many megabytes am I getting? You know, I'm like, dude, really? How fast do you need to watch a movie? Like, they work fine. Turn on your Netflix. Yeah. It's fine. How, you know... But anyway, that's a whole other uh, conversation. Yeah. I did want to ask you about something because this is something that uh, people uh, bring up around Kava. And that was this 2001 claims connecting Kava to liver toxicity. Mm -hmm. And from what you're saying here, I don't hear any counterindications or any potential for overdose or organ mm -hmm. damage or anything like that. What's the origin of that story? And is there any truth to it? So a lot of times I actually even lead off shows with this just because it's so important. Um, this is probably one of the most important points that, that we can even touch on with Kava because you know, when people are looking at anything they want to put into their body, what's most important because of how we're wired from a survival standpoint is, is it safe? And then I'll look at it. Is it effective? Right. And there's just like almost any plant medicine or most of the compounds that are popular today, sort of in the health and wellness or biohacking sphere, um, you know, there have been, you know, there have been some, some non-nuanced, you know, uh, you know, liberties that have been taken sort of in the education around it, right? It's like all, you know, all these plant medicines where you go to cannabis or psilocybin or <laughs> even far less controversial ones, um, have always had strikes on their reputation or been misunderstood because these are complex, like this whole discussion is unraveled. These are complex discussions and about context on when to use, how to use, how to prepare, all of this, how to form a relationship with plants. And a lot of times when we, when we try to take an oversimplistic sort of dominant approach, I mean, obviously, you know, nuance is part of becoming a, um, you know, intelligent, mature human being, right? Because the devil's in the details, Right. And um, that's what's, again, another thing that's missing from the collective conversation today is people tend to take extreme positions and to totally dismiss someone based on one little thing or dismiss this based on this and not be specific. So it's like when people ask me, is Kava safe? You know, I read something about potential liver toxicity. I said, well, what are we talking about? It's like, that'd be like, you know, are humans safe? Well, it's like, well, which humans? You know, it's like, you're safe, but I may run into someone on the street that wants to kill me. <laughs> You know, um, so that's, that's, that's kind of a way of thinking about it. But basically, so kava has been drank by virtually 90% of the population of Vanuatu and Fiji and most of these other islands daily for 3,000 years, okay? So even just if we start from there, you know, from a common sense standpoint, indigenous cultures don't keep doing things for 3,000 years whenever they're, if they're dropping dead from it or even noticing small devastating effects on their health from it, Okay. Um, we have no reports of, of liver toxicity in any of the anthropological accounts going back as far as kava has been looked at in their context. In 2000, kava was starting to make its way out, even in its subtle extract form. And there was about to be a big kava boom around the world. Pharmaceutical companies were looking at it like pharmaceutical companies tend to do. Um, they were wanting to create a patentable drug version of it. And so 
they were trying to create an isolate of one of the main um, you know, covalactones, the active constituents called cavain, um, and a few of the other ones. But they were wanting basically isolated extracts. They thought they were going to get something more potent. And they were also looking to cut their costs and get the cheapest cob material that they could because they were just looking to see if it had covalactones in it. They weren't seeing if it had any other waste products in it or anything. So basically, this one pharmaceutical company from Germany created one pharmaceutical product that it, by definition is not kava. No more than a synthetic caffeine pill is coffee or cocaine is coca tea from Peru. Um, they, they created this pharmaceutical product, um, you know, put it into some studies uh, that had a lot of, that were basically based around alcoholics that were coming off alcohol that had very, very poor liver function already. And they gave this pharmaceutical product that was extracted with chemical acetone solvents, we think now, um, which would have concentrated the, uh, you know, the toxins in it, in, in the toxins, sorry, you know, the toxins in it um, came from the fact that they, they sourced waste product as low quality kava products. They were sourcing leaves and stems of the kava products. So I kind of touched on it earlier that traditionally the indigenous people figured out millennia ago that you only consume the roots of kava. It's kind of like rhubarb. There are parts of the plant that are very toxic. There are parts of the plant you make a nice pie out of. It's benign. There are certain mushrooms that'll kill you in 30 minutes if you eat it. There are certain things that, you know, there are parts of different plants and parts of the ecology that, you, that you're not supposed to eat and parts that you do. Um, the leaves and stems of kava have these plant defense alkaloids in them that are not adaptable to the human digestive system. Like they can actually make you pretty sick. And still, we don't have any records of them really harming anyone or hurt or, or killing anybody, right? But they know that you feel very sick whenever you eat them. They stopped eating them millennia ago. Um, but they still have covalactones in them and they're very cheap. And the, there are unscrupulous farmers that will sell their waste products to people who don't know any better. And that was essentially what was uncovered to have happened here um, is that there was this one pharmaceutical company. They took this, these products that were not these, these certified daily use, the thing that people have been drinking every single day, then extracted it with these um, chemical solvents, created a pharmaceutical out of it, that now it's anything but kava. It's a pharmaceutically derived of, of wrong parts of the plant. And they gave it to these people and it really only even hurt a, a few handfuls of people in the entire history of the use of the kava. But it got a bunch of press. Um, there was stories written about it. And once media gets behind something, it starts proliferating and then countries got scared and a few countries banned it around the world. And America never banned it. Uh, you, you know, I mean, FDA didn't because they knew there was insufficient evidence. They just issued a disclaimer. It's like, ah, you may want to be careful, basically, was the, was, the, uh, was the situation. It was basically like, you may not want to consume regularly or something. Um, but this whole process has been heavily studied, heavily investigated over the last 15 to 20 years. And so much so that it's been totally vetted out there. There is really no dispute in the scientific community anymore that it's very clear that this was a quality control issue. So much so that even the WHO, which, you know, you know, I mean, usually it's pretty rigorous, you know, I mean, they're not known for being tremendously lax on, on, you know, circumstances like this, has taken an official position through which there's, you know, official documentation for, um, through a, you know, a subsidiary organization called the Codex Alimentarius Commission, which basically is a subsidiary that sets world quality standards for food products. Um, and they made an official statement saying this was a quality control issue. Traditional kava has been consumed regularly by indigenous peoples in the South Pacific as a food. If you abide by these quality standards, then kava is a safe food product, right? So that's what this international quality standard that's going to be established here in the next year 
um, is going to be what we're going to go off of as we start to integrate a cultural context. It's like we test to make sure that it meets all of these criteria, meaning we test to make sure it has 100% root material. So we can test for chlorophyll. If it has chlorophyll in it, any chlorophyll basically, then it's not 100% root material. Um, we test for mycotoxins. We test to make sure that it's these daily use varieties. We test um, you know, to make sure it doesn't have pesticides and anything. So we, we meet all these criteria. And in the future, we're going to be able to um, move towards full food classification, just like coffee, if it meets all of those things. Really? So this has been vetted out. It's just still hovering around the internet some because once yeah. people have been saying it for so long, yeah. virtually every country that elicited a ban on kava. And it was just a ban for import. There was never, it was never scheduled or made illegal. It was, it was just like there was some bans because people weren't sure. Virtually every country uh, that had bans has either lifted them or is in the process of lifting those bans. So it really is a non-issue. It's just hordes of people still believe it because it's just like been said. It's just like, how long did it take for people to understand the difference between the male portion of hemp and just CBD and like 30 to one, yeah. you know, you know, THC to CBD marijuana, you know? Yeah. Is it, yeah. Is there, uh, it doesn't sound like it, but is there any potential risk for uh, regulation? Like uh, has happened, I think, a, a few attempts by the FDA to make, to classify Kratom as a drug and make it illegal. Um, my suspicion is that it's so effective at helping people get off pharmaceutical opiates that, you know, lobbying powers don't want it to be readily available like it is. Do you see that happening or not so much because it doesn't have that same, well, it doesn't have addiction potential as we covered, but it also doesn't get you super wasted and mm -hmm. cause a teenager to, you know, run his car into a ditch. With anything like this, that's always a concern, obviously, because the way that, uh, you know, industry and, you know, your allocated power within industry is structured, obviously, you worry about that type of like crony capitalism and different things. But um, Yukava has a unique protection against that. It's very different than, uh, you know, Kratom. Kratom has always been known to be kind of a double-edged sword. <clears throat> it's not a plant that you can form a tonic relationship with indefinitely, just like cannabis, honestly, outside of CBD, but just like cannabis or even stronger psychedelics, it's more of an acute medicine. It's tremendous for transitioning someone off opiates. You take it over a long period of time, it, it, it can knock you off your center. It's not that kind of a relationship. It's not yeah. tonic in that way. Kava has already been classified as a dietary supplement. Kratom wasn't. It was always a not-for-human-consumption gray area product, so which the FDA can go after it if there's enough you know, so lobbying support, then they can easily push it into... Once something has already been classified as a supplement, which Kava was ushered in in 94 as a dietary supplement, and now with this international quality standard, we're moving towards food classification. So it's moving in the opposite direction. Which is even safer. Safer. I mean, so in terms full, of Yeah, like industry. full like coffee-level classification. Wow. So, Speaking of coffee level, now I want to put some in my coffee. Yeah. <laughs> when you said that, I was like, hmm, this makes sense. It's amazing. It's amazing in and, coffee. Uh, you know, the, for those listening, it's, you know, it's hard to describe the taste of kava. I mean, I guess it, there's many different preparations and the, the bottle that you gave me actually tasted good because there's other stuff in it. But it's not an herb uh, or a plant that I would necessarily crave or be like, ooh, that tastes delicious. When you mix like the oil you guys make and the, is it Kavaplex? Is that mm -hmm. that oil? When you yeah. mix that uh, with coffee, does it disappear that kind of weird bitter numbing taste? It, uh, well, it still has the numbing taste, but it gets rid of a lot of the excess muck and the tannins and the root fibers that create that kind of bitter, kind of nasty, muddy taste. And it's so well refined without getting rid of the medicine. That was, that was the trick in formulating these products is developing and literally patenting 
you know, extraction, stabilizing, and filtration methods that leave all of the medicine in there, but refine it into a very palatable, very tasty, ready-to-use product that's not going to dwindle in its potency. That took years of development to really dial in, you know? And that's really the, the magic of it. If you can capture it right, then it's this amazing medicine that I truly believe we can integrate into the culture. And I do believe that it'll make a very, very positive net contribution along with this, this plant renaissance that's taking place right now. And I, I, I yeah. truly believe that. And I truly believe that uh, it's an opportunity. It's, it's just another tool, right? There are many tools that are important, but sometimes if you can give somebody something that they can feel and open up some doorways, then it gives them that spark of inspiration to then fill out the rest of their puzzle, right? It's like, we've always talked about that like food is a good entry point to like reclaiming personal sovereignty. It's like when you realize that you can actually you know, you can actually be in control of the amount of energy and life force that you have as a person and what you put in is creating you. It it, it creates this deeper connection with you, you know, and, you know, sort of your existential core that leads to a level of inspiration that um, leads to a a shift in the, the way you approach life in almost every other way, your friendships, relationships. So these are entry points. These are not, you know, I'm never, you know, going anywhere selling a, this is gonna fix all your problems or one more it's always a multi-therapeutic approach. It always is to change your life. But I think that leverage tools like this are, are, are tremendous in a time where we so desperately need uh, you know, tools to where we can deviate from some of these more pernicious you know, addictive interventions, as well as um, are, are looking for a tolerable way to, to optimize our consciousness as well too, you know, and to sort of yeah. you, you know, disconnect from the rat race and you know, Kava is just so tremendous at bringing people together. And mo- the most interesting conversations I've ever had happen over Kava because it, it is amazing at connecting people like alcohol, but instead of like, you know, you know, connecting in a more primitive way, right? Like alcohol tends to do uh, in high doses. It, it, it brings out just sort of like the depths of like who you really are, right? In, this, in the islands, they have a saying a man who drinks alcohol becomes a beast and a man who drinks kava becomes more of who he really is. Wow. You know, and That's uh, cool. they, they always sort of knew that. And um, I just think that it's, uh, you, know, I, you know, I never want these conversations to be just like a running commercial for a, I, I got into this through tremendous pain and I truly believe in, in the, you know, the therapeutic application of bringing sort of these natural parts of the ecology into our lives and to sort of, that sort of nature realignment principle and just to really find ourselves and, you know, to just create the framework that we can take responsibility and just start to put our lives in order. And I think that's what's really needed today. How can we, because I'm totally on board with this, uh, it just makes sense intuitively and looking at indigenous cultures present and past and how they've used plants in community, as you've so beautifully explained, to um, get in touch with their uh, innate intelligence and true essence and then share that with one another. Um, But each time I've had an experience with plant medicines and things like that, uh, while I'm in it and shortly after, I think this is the answer to all of our problems. <laughs> we need to give this to everyone. And I know that's not, you know, logical or appropriate or smart or anything because it's, you know, those things, as you said, require the utmost care. But I am starting to see more and more as these subcultures emerge that there really is, there's an awakening going on as strange as things are. Uh, I've just 
as someone who's been into personal development and spirituality for a couple of decades now, uh, it used to be a bit more sparse on the landscape. You know, you wouldn't so often meet someone that you could have a deep conversation with about these things. You had to really work and dig to find yeah. other people who shared a lot of those sentiments. Yeah. yeah. And so I really think there's something happening as these plants and, and their intelligence find their way into Western culture and sort of emerge out of the shadows of, you know, being suppressed or hidden or just kind of forgotten and lost or undiscovered in some of the smaller indigenous cultures. So I think there is really something to this. So I'm wondering, apart from someone just procuring their own kava supply from a guy like you, what do you see um, in your vision for us having a way to communally do the kava thing the right way? If the kava bars kind of are, you know, largely uh, uninformed and perhaps not getting the best quality and Mm -hmm. preparations and supply chain and all that, do you see a way to kind of create an elite level community of kava users or to to educate the kava bars so that they can be a place where we can have those empathy filled, you know, synchronized brain conversations? So our goal is basically to, uh, you know, you approach this in sort of a, you know, a multi-layered, you know, sort of fashion, right? What we want to do is to Continue to create, standardize, and provide palatable, ready-to-use forms that still hold the therapeutic value of kava that can be scaled and integrated into you know, different markets, the stronger ones for the more recreational connoisseur markets, and then ones hopefully in, in the mass retail market where we can actually reach as much of the culture as we possibly can in the existing infrastructure. So if you talk about restaurants and bars and things like that, and you know, of course, like that is is you know something that's available that's standardized that can come in forms that, you know, they can integrate into already existing social frameworks. And then also, I mean, you know, we work and know tons of people who uh, who build kava bars and you know integrate those, trying to revamp that too as well to where we can offer our products to them to where they can start to integrate it into their more sort of niche. Because a lot of the kava bars are trying to recreate the the island experience and stuff. And I think there's a place for that because people like that. But then there's also a place for just integrating kava into the modern sort of uh, you know social framework and the infrastructure as it exists, right? So basically anywhere where you would see sodas or beer, any of those places, we I envision a world in which kava is one of the main commodities um, that, that we integrate that is kind of like this sort of... Uh, it's, you know, in many ways, it's an answer, you know, you know, to those things, but it doesn't have to be. I'm not necessarily like going against any of those things. It's just another opportunity, especially for people that want something that has a little more therapeutic, uh, you know, you know, value across the board as far as like the psyche and that's sort of safe and all of these things, right? And I, and I do believe by sneaking these things in, the indigenous people have always known that uh, even if you're not trying to get these sort of, these, these psychological and emotionally balancing effects off kava, it happens, right? So even if you're taking it just because you're just an average person who just wants something that, you know, you know, to help relax you and things like that, and you can't, don't want to go to, you know, the alcohol route, that it still can have these effects on you where you start to, you know, it can have really positive effects on your emotional framework. And the indigenous people have always, always recognized that. So what we want to do is, is to not try to necessarily I mean, there are opportunities possibly to to build new infrastructure, obviously, to integrate it into, but to usually when you inject kava into existing infrastructure, it changes the way people connect and it changes um, the environment of the of the infrastructure as well too, which is what I have full confidence in. 
Awesome. That's a great plan. And what do you guys have um, coming up in terms of product development? Is there anything interesting going on with different types of drinks or mm-hmm. formulations and whatnot? Yeah. So we're working on you know a few different things. We're still formulating our strategy on when we're layering these things, obviously, into the market. But right now, We've got you know the kava oil, which is like you know it's it's the kavaplex oil. It's it's the base entry level product that's that's at a concentration that it's not overwhelming or anything, and it gives you sort of the all of these basic effects, but a concentration and potency that almost anyone, even kids, can tolerate at any time of the day. You can put it in your coffee. You can get a lot of these effects that we're talking about on mind optimization and just you know on you know relaxation and enhanced and deep sleep is what a lot of people see on their sleep scores. People who wear aura rings like us and things. Um, but just to get more restorative sleep, which is something that's huge right now too, as well. So we have, you know, you know the Calvaplex, which is more like a food grade. And we see that as being another thing in the marketplace, kind of like MCT oil that can be an additive to anything for ketogenic purposes, you know, across the board. And then all the other things that we've touched on as well. And then we have the existing shots, which are kind of like a step up from that, that bring a little bit more of the depth, but are still, um, kind of mass market ready. They're still pretty controlled in their effects. And then we have, you know, one that I gave you today, obviously, which was a, a, a prototype of our next drink and shot line coming out. That's really more of the full blown effects of um, of of dried, you know, traditional kava, um, both in sort of a carbonated drink form that we're looking at, uh, you know, trying to produce, and uh, in, in a shot form that we're that we're sure we're going to be rolling out. Um, and that's so. There's different tiers of effects that you can get, but it's still very simple. Basically, we've basically we'll have um, a shot in the oil as being, you know, the two main things. And, um, you know, you know, look for options, obviously, as basically, um, you know, a you know, carbonated drink product that's more of sort of like, you know, you know, the social integration, just like you would have a beer or a coffee with somebody, you know, something that tastes, you would drink it just on yeah. taste alone, but you can integrate it and get these amazing social enhancing sort of relaxation, you know, therapeutic effects off of uh, doing it as well. And in the future, uh, we're we're working on means of making it even more potent and closer to what you'd get fresh kava in the islands, which is even more potent for extreme therapeutic application, which is something that that you can only experience currently if you pull a plant right out of the ground really? and have it right there. There's yeah. that much difference, huh? Oh, there's there's yeah. If if you go to Vanuatu oh. and you go into the village and you pull a kava plant right out of the ground, it it is undeniable. There is no subtlety or even building up the effects, wow. which is which it's it's a uh, it's powerful. And so you do, uh, you know, a kava ceremony there. It's a very, very empathetic, connective entheogenic, but still, you still have all your faculties, which is so amazing. So for people that are not wanting to go into altered states or any weirdness or bad trips or any of this stuff that brings complication to it, it's this just amazing, very smooth sort of embracing experience. It just feels like someone's wrapping a warm blanket around you and gives you this sort of introspective space where you can connect with people and and in not a way that even has to be guided. It's, you know, but then it, wow. it brings people together, like-minded people get around it and the best conversation, the best brainstorming happens while you're doing it. We have people in their boardrooms, obviously, that are that are strategizing with it. And I think I think better strategies uh, uh, will come out of, uh, out of, you know, being in states like that if we're integrating it into sort of like the business sector as well too. That's why I like it, you know. I've always yeah. seen it as not the most potent hit you over the head, you know, you know, medicine, um, that's out there, but one that can be integrated into every layer of, of culture. And I, I see a, a possibly an even greater positive net impact than some of the even stronger ones. Wow. So cool, so, man. What a great conversation, dude. Yeah. Thank dude, you. Dude, this is one of my favorite places to be. <laughs> I love this stuff. We all, man. I'm, yeah. I'm all, every time I have one of these, I just think, God, I'm so lucky. I would 
want to just sit here and have this conversation that we just had anyway. If it, I, me too. If it yeah. wasn't being recorded, because it's just like getting all these ideas and I'm all inspired and hopeful about the future and yeah. hopefully people listening are having the same experience. Um, in closing, I'm going to ask you a question I've asked you before and hopefully you didn't prepare for it because I love to stump people. But uh, who have been three influences in your life, teachers or teachings that uh, you might share with us that have helped you become who you are? Yeah. And I, I remember this question last time and uh, I, I said, <laughs> but I'm going to give you, you yeah, I'll, I'll definitely give you different answers this time okay. for sure. So, you know, the last time I said the obvious ones, I used two, I, I, I used up two of the, of the slots on my parents because they were, they were my rock and my ultimate support system and nothing could have happened at them. That was literally a gift from God or the divine and whatever you you would you would you would see the sources being there's no question that I've been blessed with a tremendous support system that helped save my life and inspire me and they're my main heroes, um, and you know you know other parts of my amazing family as well too and, and you know that's an easy one right so that's kind of like an out right <laughs> some people <laughs> would 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 use that and then I remember saying Alan Watts is the third one whenever you asked me as well too because I mean come on it's Alan Watts right. Um, and so that one's an easy one too, but I'll, I'll be more specific here with these, um, you know, more, I guess, you know, modern things. I, um, and a lot of people have said this, you know, the work of Weston A. Price was something that changed, uh, you know, my perspective on how we can integrate ourselves with the ecology and food as well. That was a, you know, a good one that led to an interest in people like Rudolf Steiner and Victor Schauberger and those people. Um, and so I could definitely say that, but more, more importantly, I think the, the perspective of, you know, um, just, you know, psychologically and just, you know, sort of getting a, you know, a trajectory or a sense of purpose on, uh, you know, how I even approach anything or what, what even drives me or why I'm doing anything. Right. Um, you know, as of late, uh, in the last few years, I really respect Jordan Peterson, <laughs> I love that guy. I mean, a lot of people do. He's exploded in popularity. And uh, I guess a lot of his um, perspectives come from Carl Jung, which I also am just fascinated by because there's such a powerful message about, about um, y- you know, finding meaning, you know, not to pursue happiness, as he would say, pursue meaning, which we kind of touched on that earlier, right? Because, you know, <laughs> you know, happiness is not pleasure. Happiness is fulfillment. That's really what happiness actually is. And the most profoundly fulfilling things in life are not things that perpetually feel good, right? For example, having children, having deep relationships, you know, um, you know, starting, starting companies that do good things. All of those things, none of those things are pleasurable. Like most of the time, those things are grueling. Those things are tough. Like no one has kids and is like, just lives in bliss every second of the day like that. Hell no. You know, or like, or, or like you said, a, a business owner, you yes. know, a lot of people complain about their job and I'm always like, try to run your own business. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's, it's no party. It looks sexy from the outside, but in the, in the uh, internal operations of it, it can be quite challenging. But the thing is, is that there's a fulfillment that comes in some of the deepest, darkest, even you can be in tremendous pain, but if you're aligned with something that instead of you having to push yourself through, if you're aligned with a greater part of yourself that's connected to, you know, whatever you see that source that we've talked about as being that collective intelligence, what we really are fundamentally, your core, if you're aligned with that, then you can be completely happy. Even if you're in tremendous pain, you can be fulfilled, right? That's what we're all really seeking. And that's why whenever we 
choose to pursue pleasure instead, it ends up being this, this sort of negative feedback loop that's not fulfilling because meaning is the sustenance, right? Meaning is the reason why all these survival mechanisms are in place for us to reach and to remember who we really are and manifest, you know, the greatest level of potential that we possibly can collectively, you know, and find what we actually know to be as, as, as truth and love and all of the things that, you know, can become cliche, you know, terms, right. By new age approaches. But there's a reason why is because those things in their truest form, right. What they actually really are, are just like the meaning of what all of us really want. And, um, you know, so, you know, pursuing meaning, like say, if you have a child, you know, people who have children, you know, most people that are, that are halfway balanced and have themselves together to have children, say it's the most important thing. Nothing even comes close to it, right? Because the meaning they get through that connection and bearing that child and, and, and allowing that child and, and, you know, protecting it and allowing it to flourish in the world, you know, it doesn't even matter how hard it is. They go through hell raising children, right? You know, but it gives you something that drugs <laughs> your, do not. Your dad's over here nodding. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I saw him nodding out of the corner of my eyes, like damn straight. Exhibit A. Yeah. As a witness. Yeah. No, but, and, and so, so that's why I would say people like Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson, that I think what we need a lot right now, there's a lot going on in the world right now that is embracing the victim mentality and that is embracing this sort of the pursuit of pleasure and retreating into these sort of states that feel good, but that aren't really pursuing personal responsibility and meaning, right? And you know, meaning primarily comes through adopting responsibility and doing things that bring you closer to making a contribution to growth, personal growth and giving, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. And so I yeah. really, really think it's like, and when I noticed this, because I had you know, a million opportunities during my process of descending into hell where you know, becoming a victim felt really good of like, oh, the pharmaceutical industry destroyed me. My doctors destroyed me. No one was helping me, you know? And I'm, and I'm screwed because of it. But it didn't take long to realize that that wasn't a solution. And that wasn't the place in which my heart wanted to go at all. You know, there is no solution in victimizing yourself. You know, we're all, you know, victims to some degree, right? We're all, we have been, you know, a combination of victim and victimizer. But we can have a choice on whether we want to become that victim. Um, and the worst thing you could ever do to someone is convince themselves that they're a victim, Right. So that's, that's really just a short explanation there of like why I would choose, you know, like a, like a Carl Jung or a Jordan Peterson. And then I would probably say, you know, um, outside of that, not even thinking of a third one. I mean, we could just say Weston A. Price or something for the third one because that's a, a secondary thing. But yeah, so those are some great, are great some examples. Lines. Yeah, so. I, I love Jordan Peterson. Um, you know, he's so, what's the word? Um, you know, he's got like that grumpy old man kind of energy, you know what I mean? He gets yeah. so annoyed with people. Yeah. I just find that very uh, endearing. But what I really like about his approach is it's, it's, it's extremely simple and it's just logical and pragmatic, you know, which I think is why he's so polarizing in many ways because he doesn't appease to the emotions. Right. Right. The emotions to him seem inconsequential. It's like, just get that out of the way. Not that... You know, there isn't value in emotions and feeling them and expressing them, obviously, because if you suppress them, then, you know, you have problems down the road. But I like his approach to just like logic and common sense. And it's, and it's very mm -hmm. spiritual. You know, I mm -hmm. think that that approach to life that you just described and, and kind of laying out, you know, part of his model um, is very spiritual. 
you know, that's that's reality. There there are fundamental and universal truths that exist and really uh, uh, make up our experience. Um, and if we can find out what they are and adhere to them, life gets a lot smoother. Yeah. And we're able to overcome adversity. And that's why his book is called 12 Rules for Life, his first yeah. one, An Antidote to Chaos, right? It's like yeah. order to the chaos requires, yes, it requires intuition and it requires openness and it requires introspection like that would come from more of this right side of the brain mentality that would be more dominant on, say, what we would call like the left, right? But then it also requires the discipline the structure, the integration, the analysis to ground it for execution that you would get from more of what we would call the right side of the spectrum. Right, right. And so that's good. That that sort of fusion of those two things um, and understanding that they are both, both of those mentalities are two sides of the same coin that create sort of a full, all-inclusive perspective and recipe for success is why I think people like him have become so popular. And I think that that's sort of at the foundation of what the world really needs is a perspective integration that um, you know, dissipates a lot of the division um, and understanding yeah. that both of these sides have part of the answer. So hot damn, you should run for president, bro. <laughs> That's what this country needs right oh, now, man. Balance, balance, emotion, <laughs> empathy, compassion, logic, facts, truth. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Dude, thanks for joining me on a show. Dude. It's really great to catch up with you. You've got like when I interviewed you before, you were a wealth of knowledge, extremely inspiring, and you've just like taken it to another level. So it's really great to catch up with you. Man, and thanks uh, so much for having me. This is yeah. great. This is yeah. my favorite forum, you know, and just just have a great conversation, you know. Likewise. Awesome. And thank you for the work you're doing, man, and the vision. You know, I think your vision has also matured since we spoke last time, mm -hmm. where you're like, No, I want this to be just everywhere right yeah. and and seeing that relationship with plants and consciousness and and the evolution and hopefully the survival of the species that we are a part of um and dude and thank you so yeah. much too for your you know i your your podcast i've i've loved the identity that it's taken on it's so you know everyone not just in this industry but people that you know we all know a lot of you know mutual friends and we go to events and we know a lot of people, really great inspirational people. And every single time your name comes up, every single person is like, I love Luke. Oh, that's <laughs> I think, great, I think the term that comes up is like, he's a solid guy, right? He's just, he's exactly the same, you know, whenever the camera's on and whenever it's off and you just, you want to talk about the stuff, you're just trying to figure it out and find answers. That's what I'm trying, that's what we're all trying to do, you know? Yeah. And these long forums just like, open conversations are just great, you know? Well, and thank uh, you. So, that's, that's a really a kind compliment. Thanks. Yeah, man. I, I love what you're doing. I love the podcast. So I appreciate that. Awesome. Well, now you can listen to your own podcast. <laughs> Be a fan of both of ours. Uh, where can people find you on social media and websites, et cetera? Yeah. Okay. So our website is gettruecava.com. That's get T-R-U, not T-R-U-E, kava.com. Um, and you can find us at True Kava on Instagram and then, you know, True Kava on Facebook and everything. And of course, you can look at my my personal profile where I do a lot of stuff. It's Cameron George and, uh, you know, at Cameron George Kava. And, um, and that's pretty much, it's pretty much it. Easy to find from there. So Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm ready to go pound another one of your drinks. I really like it. that. Yeah. I feel really good, honestly. Yeah. I'm like, huh? Because I'm thinking, what else did I do? I mean, you know, of course there's a stack of a bunch of stuff I took this morning. I did an injection of GH3 yeah, yeah. in my 
in my butt cheek, uh, took a bunch of paracetam, and probably a few other things, but um, <laughs> that definitely was like a nice topper. So yeah, looking forward to getting to know more of that. So thanks for coming on, dude. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Anytime. Best of luck and uh, continue on with the great work. Awesome. Let's hear it for Cameron George, guys. What an incredible guy, man. His story is so inspiring. His commitment to research is so inspiring. And I'm, again, just so grateful that I I think I tracked down the person that probably knows more about this plant medicine known as kava than anyone on the planet. I mean, I don't know. Challenge me if you'll find someone more knowledgeable. But uh, dude is obsessed. And I love people that are obsessed with things that help people. And that's what the show is all about. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, If you're like me and you listen to podcasts and then get excited and go, oh my God, I have to try that thing that they talked about. And then you're trying to remember what the link was, where to find it, whatever. Uh, I've had True Kava, Cameron's product on my site for, I don't know, maybe two or three years. Now I've been using it ever since. I first met him actually back here in Austin, Texas some years ago. Uh, If you're someone that wants to check it out, know that pretty much anything I talk about on the show that I think is awesome that I use, you can find at lukestory.com slash store, including all of our sponsors. Uh, If you want to check out True Kava, you can just go directly to them. Go to kavaplex.com. The code there to get yourself a 20% off discount is Luke20. That's kavaplex.com. C-A-V-A-P-L-E-X. And uh, as with all of the things that I promote on the show, I really believe in this stuff. It's um, it's pretty incredible. Very, very special. And uh, especially for you know those of us that want to explore plant medicines that have what I would consider to be a, a subtle, but still definitely psychoactive effect. Um, and as you probably gathered from this conversation, kava, depending on, I guess, which type and how much of it you take is not something that's going to prevent one from... Uh, living their daily life, although there are recreational doses, as uh, Cameron indicated. But I think this is just a really great tonic herb to use on a regular basis. So uh, I'm a huge fan, huge believer, and so glad that I didn't go and waste a bunch of money at Kava bars. <laughs> so I've driven by them and I'm like, oh, I should go try it. And I think, well, I remember Cameron told me, you know, they're not all created equal. And I'm sure there are some great ones out there doing it right as well, but I just don't have any way to vet them, I guess, unless I interviewed their founders or owners. So thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. And uh, as another reminder, I'll be back next week with our second time guest, Robert Slovak. Now, many people are curious about uh, something I covered a couple years ago called deuterium depleted water. And uh, Robert happens to be an expert on that. And it's something that I've been a huge fan of. One of my, I would say, top health hacks when it comes to energy and mitochondrial function. So we talk about that and also molecular hydrogen which is uh, something that I've been using daily, multiple times a day, actually, for many years. And uh, those two topics are something that people have a lot of curiosity about. And uh, also, two that I've had a lot of requests to cover, again, at greater depth. So next week's show for you biohackers is going to be a good one. Let's go ahead and thank our sponsors before we check out here. We've got Bioptimizers. They make, of course, some incredible enzyme products magnesium breakthrough. Uh, These guys have really helped with my digestion. Honestly, overall, uh, there's a couple brands that I work with in that space. And with all of them combined, I've come a long way in healing my gut and digestion. And I'm feeling better all the time because that was kind of the last frontier for me. Um, Actually, 
Restoring my eyesight to 2020, that's that's the last frontier. That, that's the thing that probably bugs me the most. But in terms of just regular body bodily uh, activities and processes, uh, I would say digestion is one that for some reason has been a little bit slow for me, probably because sometimes I lack discipline around my diet and you know, avoiding gluten and the nasty things out there that I would be better served to avoid. So Bioptimizers can help you with all of that. You can find them at bioptimizers.com slash Luke. Code there's Luke 10 that gets you 10% off. And then last but certainly not least, Organifi. And as I say the word Organifi, I'm realizing even though uh, as a result of this podcast, I'm friends with um, the founder, Drew Canoli. Actually, we're just texting this morning and um, I'm, I don't have any of their product here because we moved and our house is being renovated and all my products are or at least the Organifi products are stuck in my garage somewhere. I have no idea what box they're in. So I need to get in touch with them and get some of this stuff myself. So I'm going to take my own advice. Uh, you can get the Organifi red or the gold, uh, even the green powders. They're all an incredible way to get superfoods into your body. And if you're someone like me that is busy or doesn't really have time to sit and chew a salad all day long, uh, it's a really great way to get those micronutrients and polyphenols, etc., into your cuerpo. That's body in Spanish. Organifi.com. That's Organifi with an I, guys, not the Y. Special kind of Organifi spelling. Organifi.com slash lifestylist. The code there is lifestylist. That gets you 20% off. I would say if you're going to start with one Organifi product and you really want to be wowed and become a regular user, the Organifi Gold is just an instant hit home run. I've never served an Organifi Gold drink hot or cold to anyone and have them not go, oh my God, what is this? It's incredible. So it's it's one of those rare things in the health and superfood world that tastes like it shouldn't be good for you, but it is. So uh, that, my friends, is what's happening today. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, at least as a participant of this episode, uh, I'd be a great service if you'd be willing to share it with a couple of friends. You know, if you're not someone that wants to buy products, great. Don't buy products, but uh, if you want to support the work I'm doing over here and the work of our incredible guests that are uh, creating research and companies and content that really uplift people mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, do yourself, our guests, me, and your friend a favor and text this episode to them right now. Seriously, just do it. Reach down on your phone and do, 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 do. Check out this episode about Kava, friend. Uh, I think you're someone that might have anxiety from time to time or maybe you need help chilling out sleeping etc think of that friend like who's your most anxious friend well send this episode to them thank you so much i'll be back next tuesday with robert slovak 